Ah, we wait. Oh, it's uh, the Pitbull guy. What's his name? Oh, shoot. <laughs> no, Craig, oh, I, I, I got it. I don't know. I got it. Oh. Hello everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days, and not so good old days, of World Championship Wrestling Series by Series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and the following announcement has been paid for by the Pridgen World Order. Alec Pridgen is still my co-host. The preceding announcement had been paid for by the Pridgen World Order. Money well spent. Uh, you paid me about 75 cents, that's all it's worth. Yeah. <laughs> How's it going tonight, Al? Good. How's it going with you? Going all right. Uh, we are starting. What? What is this now? Our our fifth series of this? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Starcade, Slamboree, Wrestle War, Spring Stampede, and now this. Right. Yeah, so, that, wow, that that feels like a lot. It does. Yeah. <laughs> and what a series it is! As tonight we are taking a look at Hog Wild 1996. Ain't no easy riders here. Now I get that's a reference to the movie, but it more makes it sound like everyone on the show had a difficult time riding a motorcycle. Right. It's also a weird burn on a famous motorcycle movie. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you like motorcycle movies? Well, screw you. Wrestling's better. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird thing for yeah. a show that's all about motorcycle enthusiasm, right? Yeah, exactly. In many ways, it's the opposite of what you wanted for a subtitle on this one. Yeah, right. Subtitles aside, Hog Wild 1996 was held on Saturday, August 10th, 1996, at the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally in Sturgis, South Dakota, in front of 5,000 fans, of which zero paid, as this thing was just kind of out in the open in the middle of the rally. The Sturgis Motorcycle Rally is an annual event in August, first held in 1938. Wow. These days, it lasts for 10 days. Now, it did take a break for World War II, but infamously, it did not take a break during the COVID-19 pandemic, and cases across the country were linked to attendance at the rally or contact with its attendees. Mm-hmm. WCW's Hogwild and Roadwild pay-per-views, of course, occur well, well before all of that. Yes, correct. Hogwild 1996 earned $155,000 pay per view buys, so at least WCW made some money that way. That is pretty solidly in the middle of the pack for 1996. Oh, okay. Now, they're coming off, storyline-wise, like the biggest show of the year. So interesting to see if they get an uptick going forward with these. Yeah, I feel like um, it takes a little bit for them to fully see one. I, I believe, if I recall correctly, the Starcade numbers for the year were pretty good. Yeah. They were in the $200,000 range, 200000 200, buy range, I yeah. think, which was better than their norm for a long time. But then it's not until next year that they really, really see everyone's got to see this angle. Right, exactly. Despite it being really one of WCW's most successful angles of all time, it actually does take quite a while before it hits that you gotta see this stage. Yeah, which is funny because at the same time, we're getting into Austin 316, mm-hmm. which is viewed the same way. People think, oh, instantly, Steve Austin was a huge star and yada yada, but no, it took a while like this did as well. Yeah, remember, I mean, Austin, Austin 316, I think, actually has happened yes. at this point, and this is just the start of the 83 weeks. 
mm-hmm. that WCW wins against the WWF. Yeah. We're near the beginning of that period. So it's not like they anoint Steve Austin as their rising star. Right. And immediately conquer WCW again. They've got him pretty solidly in the state where they're high on this guy. Mm-hmm. But it's still going to be about a year and a half before the WWF manages to take back over WCW. Yeah. Which is kind of amazing to think about. There's a lot of things in wrestling history that, one, you don't realize are as long a period as they are. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes, conversely, things that you just, thinking about it, don't realize are so close together. Right. Like, uh, for me, it's always the Dungeon of Doom angle and the NWO that, like, this is what? Two three months after uncensored nineteen ninety six, yeah, the, it's uh, March I think, yeah. So it's not it's not long after yeah. this tremendous, hugely cartoony, triple cage match of Doom with Hogan and Savage against eight guys, and Hogan fighting the Dungeon of Doom with all these ridiculous cartoon supervillain gimmicks and everything. And now we're in this. We are deadly serious now. Yeah, exactly. But the dungeon is still here. Yes, they are. Kevin Sullivan's still hanging around, talking about how he wanted to destroy Hulkamania, but Hulkamania destroyed itself. They've they've lost some of their more cartoony characters, but the faction's still there. Correct, yes. Before the actual pay-per-view tonight, we had eight matches filmed for WCW Saturday night. The Public Enemy beat Rough and Ready. Conan beat Chavo Guerrero Jr. The Nasty Boys beat High Voltage, but at least Rage didn't have to take a Steiner screwdriver this time. It's a plus. Alex Wright beat Earl Robert Eaton in 30 seconds. Ow. The Dungeon of Doom, that's specifically Barbarian, Meng, and the Taskmaster, beat Jim Powers, Joe Gomez, and Mark Starr. If you don't know some of those names, I don't blame you. Yes. (laughs) David Taylor beat Mr. JL. Jerry Lynn making another appearance. He's, He's only actually appeared on camera, I think, in the AWA for us so far, right? Correct, yes. Yeah. Diamond Dallas Page beat The Renegade, which I would imagine at least gave Renegade one of his best matches if he studied the binders in detail. Mm -hmm. And Arn Anderson beat Hugh Morris in 40 seconds. Double ouch. Yeah. At least it wasn't the way around. That'd have been worse. I I would wager any individual wrestler's entrance took longer than the Wright versus Eaton or Anderson versus Morris matches, perhaps together. Yeah. (laughs) Given the long walks of the ring on this show, absolutely. Yeah. But what about the actual pay-per-view? Well, rev up your engine, Al. Let's ride to the ring. Less than an hour from an icon of democracy and the geographic center of these United States, through the beautiful Black Hills of South Dakota, a small town of 6,500 people lies in wait. Since 1938, enthusiasts have gathered here for something more than just riding a machine between your legs. It is known simply as Sturgis, the motorcycle rally of the world. A quarter of a million bikers are jammed into this small town for racing, festivities, and the biggest biker party on the planet. New to the mix this year, World Championship Wrestling arrives, proving that this annual event will truly be hog wild. Our opening video package provides sweeping shots of the Sturgis area nearby Mount Rushmore, and the Motorcycle Rally, accompanied by piano and guitar music that sounds kind of like it belongs in the Gabriel Knight series. Jimmy Hart is pretty infamous for making sound-alike songs. See DDP's Not Nirvana song. 
There's a whole bunch of those. This one you hear in this video package and then later in another like a mantra as they show towards the end of the show. It's a really, really close sound alike to Right Now by Van Halen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pretty shameless. Makes you want some Crystal Pepsi. It really does, yeah. It, it doesn't make me want Crystal Pepsi because I'd hated that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> some of the shots of rally attendees are interesting. <laughs> like the lady dressed in, I don't know what you'd call it, a bondage bikini. Yeah. It closes with shots of some of the WCW performers themselves arriving by motorcycle. I do like and in that and the other montage, Eric Bischoff's in there. Yeah. Like he sticks himself in the middle. Apparently this entire show may be happening just because he loves Harleys, so. It is, but it's like, see the stars of WCW, Eric Bischoff. <laughs> I agree to an extent just because he's actually not on the actual show. That is, that is part of it, yeah. Yeah, where, where if he was like one of the announcers or doing something publicly in the actual show, then maybe you wouldn't mind him being highlighted in there too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But anyway, he had fun. Sure. The sound of a motorcycle engine starting up heralds the Hog Wild logo, accompanied by what sounds like the start of that same piano theme, which fades out quite abruptly as host Tony Schiavone welcomes us to the show. I kind of wonder if the logo was originally meant to be at the beginning of the video package, but then someone thought it would look better at the end and they just had time for a quick cut and paste job rather than a full video reproduction. It's like a Christopher Nolan thing where he puts the title 20 minutes into the movie. Right, but because it's like when the show starts, uh-huh. the song is already midway and it like fades in. Right. And then the song finishes and then starts up. So you think someone just intro. chopped it off from the beginning? I think they had that at the beginning and then they decided, no, let's fade in with the mountain shot. But they did that too late for them to redo the video package entirely. Mm, okay. It's very possible. I really, really, really want this arena to be in the wrestling video games. Right? Yeah. The ring is on a raised platform above the dirt ground, so it's put up extra high. It makes it quite terrifying to watch whenever someone ends up fighting outside, but man, it would let you pull off some great crazy spots in the games. I do wonder why it's so elevated. Is it just like so people further back can see it, you think? Maybe because in this case, they don't have raised seating. Mm. If you're in an actual arena, normally you have like bleacher seats. That right, or there's an incline of some sort. So, so yeah, if, we've, if you're further back, you can still see then. But if you're in this crowd, unless you're one of the people standing on the cars in the background or something, if you're a couple rows back, all you can see is biker. Right. If they don't raise the ring. So I, I would suspect that's why that they wanted to make sure that folks back in the crowd a little bit would get the chance to see. So yeah, I, good on them for that. I suppose so, yeah. Sturgis is alive with the sound of Harleys, Tony proclaims. Now that would be an interesting change to the sound of music. (laughs) We already got lots of helicopter shots in this. They will be all through the night. I cannot imagine that those were cheap. No. At least now you can do it with drones. It is so much cheaper. Oh, yeah, yeah. Nowadays, you could get this for quite a bit cheaper, yeah. A couple hundred bucks pay a guy to fly his drone around for you. Yeah, yeah. But this one, uh, no, that, that had to be mondo expensive. Yeah. Tony and his co-host, Bobby the Brain Heenan, and the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, yes, <laughs> are dressed in their own versions of biker gear. For Heenan, that means basically dressing in normal clothes, but in black. For Tony, it's a biker hat and denim vest over utterly normal clothing. And for Dusty, for some reason, it means a biker hat, denim vest, and short shorts. Yes. What possessed him to do those instead of jeans? I don't know. Must just be warm out. (laughs) Motorcycles rev their engines all over the place as Tony, Dusty, and Heenan 
discuss the main event, Hulk Hogan versus the Giant for the Giants WCW World Heavyweight Championship. Dusty builds up Hogan's long history of big pay-per-view matches and says the Giant has to overcome that, but he also criticizes Hogan as a traitor to WCW. Heenan says he's got a gut feeling that the Giant is in big trouble. Tony is shocked by that, but Heenan says that's because of the NWO. Tony sells this as the most important title match in wrestling history. He goes on building up other matches as Dusty suddenly grins, grabs his arm, and shows the camera Tony's temporary tattoo. (laughs) Tony somehow manages to keep it together, expertly using that to bring up a lot of strange things you've never seen before on a (laughs) pay-per-view. Good on you, Tony. Just just those shorts, those tiny, tiny shorts. Just, <laughs> I just like the- he must have thought they weren't ever going to actually show him. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but, <laughs> oh my gosh. He's like, oh, we're standing up? Oh. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Our first match is Ultimo Dragon, called The Ultimate Dragon, and accompanied by Sonny Ono, versus Rey Mysterio Jr. for Mysterio's WCW Cruiserweight Championship. The referee for this one is Nick Patrick, and Mike Tanay joins the commentary team for this match. Dragon has been busy lately. He's been taking part in the Super J Cup tournament. Right. Excuse me, Super J Crown tournament, sorry. Most notably, he makes it to the finals, where he actually loses to the great Sasuke. Right. He would manage to win the title back, obviously, before we see him next. At Starcade with the enormous number of belts. Yes. <laughs> Literally too many belts for him to carry out yeah. on his own. Yes. Final action note for us, given the order he watched these shows in, the guy he beats in the semifinals is El Samurai. Okay. You may recall from Collision in Korea. Right. Yes. Was he the one that got kicked in the balls really, really hard? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he- I'm sure you've had a much better career than that, Mr. Samurai. Yeah. But, uh, that That is sadly what I remember you most for at the moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Dragon has his green outfit tonight. It is extremely shiny. It is. Sonny Ono is wearing biker gear, but thankfully has not followed Dusty's choices. Tony welcomes Mike Tanay to the commentary team for the match. Tony criticizes Heenan's outfit, particularly his lack of a tattoo. But Heenan asks if Tony's going to show that tattoo to his wife, and implies that there's another that Tony can't show to anyone. (laughs) Exactly, Dusty says. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a rare Dusty and Heenan team-up. Yeah. Brave and the bold. Which which one's the brave and which one's the bold? Ooh, I think Dusty's uh, both of them, actually. I mean, for wearing those shorts, he's got to be the brave. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Mysterio has an awesome, awesome outfit tonight. Speaking of comic books, it's themed after Spider-Man. It is, yes. It is a very, very cool design in its own right, too. This is one of the many times over his career that Ray has done some superhero-themed outfit. And they're usually amazing. Mm -hmm. He keeps it rather less copyright infringing than Arachnaman, too. Yes. Tony goes over the famous Mysterio dart throw spot and Ray's unmasking by the EMTs. Heenan interjects that the EMTs shared that Mysterio was permanently ugly or something like that. It's hard to hear him over the crowd Mm -hmm. and Mysterio's theme. Tony announces that this is the end of WCW Saturday Night and the only way to see the rest is on pay-per-view. I don't know that I've ever heard that on a show before, but normally they're not perfectly aligned with one of WCW's normal TV nights. Yeah. It's really weird, because, yeah, it's like the version we have, they put it all together, just like cuts in there. 
Yeah, yeah, they they kind of filmed this for both, basically, and just chop it off for the TV show and just carry on on the pay-per-view. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tanae finally manages to get a word in edgewise about the temporary unmasking, building up how huge it was, and he says it made the news in Mexico. He wonders if Ray has fully recovered from the dart throw. He says, this is Mysterio and Dragon's first match against each other, but they did tag together at Inoki's Wrestling Peace Festival earlier in 1996 in L.A., which is a significantly better choice of location than North Korea. Yeah. Imagine if we can find footage or anything from the later ones he did as well. Yeah, yeah. They're obviously not historically noteworthy given the location of the first one, but be sure to see. The two prove evenly matched and applaud each other, but Dragon and Ono later accuse Mysterio of pulling Dragon's belt. Tanay notes that Mysterio is only 21 to Dragon's 29, but that Mysterio went pro at 14. Yes, that's true. There's actually a video on YouTube from a group called Pro Wrestling's History Brigade Mm -hmm. that shows what they at least say is Mysterio's first match. Oh, really? He is barely as tall as the top rope. (laughs) (laughs) As you can imagine, even as an adult, he is not very tall. So Mm. as a young teenager, (laughs) quite a bit shorter. (laughs) Mysterio uses sort of a cross-legged Boston Crab and turns it into more of a deathlock, but Dragon takes him down and rolls him up for two. They trade holds, and the crowd chants USA, and it should be noted that though he did debut in Mexico, Mysterio was born in California, so they're not wrong. (laughs) Dusty gets Tanay to confirm the name of Dragon's spin wheel kick to prove to Tony he was right, referencing an earlier argument. (laughs) (laughs) Mysterio and Dragon show off with backflips off the ropes and take each other down, then flip to their feet and face off. Mysterio encourages another USA chant, and Dragon kicks the crap out of him for it. (laughs) Then, to hit Muda's handspring elbow, a running Liger bomb, and a figure four, earning several two counts as Dusty excellently talks up what Mysterio needs to do to escape. Mysterio gets the ropes, and Dragon waits until four to break. Mysterio rolls out to recover, and Ono tries to sneak over to him, but Patrick is on the ball, so Ono backs off. If anyone's going to stop cheating, it's Nick Patrick. Definitely, definitely. Uh-huh. Entirely trustworthy. Yes. Back in, Dragon hits a spinning torture rack backbreaker and locks Mysterio in the Rita Romero special, which Heenan calls the Caesar Romero special. <laughs> what a joker. I get it. <laughs> Mysterio slips free and lands on top for a couple two counts, dodges a handspring elbow, and charges. Dragon sends him up and over the turnbuckle, but Mysterio springboards back in with a dropkick to monster cheers. Dragon retreats outside, but Mysterio baseball slides to knock him off the race platform, then dives all the way from the ring to the ground to nail Dragon in a scary spot. (laughs) That WCW's camera crew mostly misses. Naturally. Dusty says... With a move like that, if you do miss, you might miss for good. Yeah. Good line. Back in, Mysterio Hurricane Rana, but Dragon dropkicks Mysterio out of the air on a springboard. Mysterio rolls out, and Dragon swings through the ropes to kick him, skins the cat to dodge a punch, and dives out onto him. Back in, Dragon German suplex for two. Heenan thinks it's three. He's wrong. He's going to do that a lot tonight. It's not his best running gag, I would say. Mm-hmm. Though Tony does get some good responses to it over the course of the night. Dragon Quibrata, slam, then Moonsault gets two. 
Dragon running powerbomb, reversed into a Herc Rana, and Mysterio tries the top rope Frankensteiner, but Dragon shoves him down, only for Mysterio to spring right back up and hit it, for the three count and the win. Mysterio celebrates with the belt and makes motorcycle rev motions, earning some engine revs from the crowd. Tanay and Tony praise Mysterio's effort there, and Heenan tells them to shut up. <laughs> Tony says goodbye to Tanay. Thoughts on this one? I mean, you consider who's involved, you know it's going to be good. Mm-hmm. Unless they're like wrestling with like one leg tied to the other, it's it's going to be really good. It's interesting because this, like I said, this is their first match against each other, so yeah, they feel very natural. Until Tanae said that, I thought these two have to have fought dozens of times. Mm-hmm. They probably didn't work out at the same level as say DDP or any Savage do, but I imagine they they know each other well enough, even through acquaintances, other coworkers, they can sort of work these things out. And they both work, you know, more the lucha style, so it's not like there's a clash. That's of true, style yeah. There. That's the whole thing with Dragon, is that he moved to Mexico to get famous. As they have on commentary, he didn't break out initially in Japan, so he moved to Mexico, got famous there until they brought him back. Yeah, which is amazing. I mean, that's that's dedication to your career right there, that yeah, right? he was willing to do what he had to do to be successful. And the fact that he's still wrestling now does speak to that, yeah. <laughs> the dives are, as you sort of mentioned, are definitely interesting on this show, given the raised height. Mm-hmm. His raise goes past the platform, but there's the bit where Dragon does his, and they land solidly on the mat the outside of ring. Right. You're like, don't roll away after you take that bump. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. There will be a longer fall than you expect. <laughs> yes. It's got to be a weird instinct you got to fight. You land and roll off and do something. You have to wait. Nope. I'm next to a big edge. Don't do that. Mm-hmm. It's also funny to see Dragon do what at this point is the tiger faint kick that spin through the ropes bit. Right. Which later becomes 619. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Young Ray is watching and learns. <laughs> Honestly, the most I can really critique of the match is that Ray's first Frankensteiner is really good. Second one, because he rushes it, is a little sloppy. But all things considered, that's pretty minor. Mm-hmm. The other thing I was thinking about, it reminded me of Starcade 95 had the Watani match. It's Watani and Eddie Guerrero, correct? Yes. And they have the bit where Otani does the dropkick to Eddie Guerrero when his back is turned. Right. And we're we're that to that thinking, you got to really trust this guy. And you have your back turned. You don't know when to, to reflect. <laughs> yeah, how much when. can you do to really be ready for that? It's just kind of like, I hope I've got the timing right. <laughs> you yeah, know? exactly. Yeah. Still is among the smoothest springboard moves ever, that Otani. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought this was an exceptional opening match, as you'd expect with these two. Fast-paced, filled with rapid, complex exchanges, performed picture-perfect each time. If this was really their first match together, you could not tell. It felt like they worked together quite a bit. There are a few very minor hesitation spots, but they're covered quite well, and the match as a whole is very smooth. And scary as that dive was, I do love that they incorporated the arena design into their match. Mm -hmm. They had a lot of variety, too. They mixed mat work, striking, acrobatics, high-flying, and power moves into one cohesive whole. Nice storytelling as well, with Dragon just a little too full of himself and distracted by the crowd to pull off a win when he has a chance. Mm -hmm. So this really, really worked to rev up the crowd and me. I thought, excellent, exciting match. It's a good way to open a show, as former they've learned. Yeah, yeah. You, You can see from these early cruiserweight matches why they reliably turn to them for the show openings as they go on, because, I mean, it's always really, really exciting. Mm -hmm. Just a great combination of stunts that 
are just amazing to behold. Yeah, the balance is just, they have to also give them stories and angles. Yeah, that they do less well at. That's the thing, yeah. They go, well, you guys go out and have these great matches every time. So then, yeah, they don't really focus on the other parts there. So eventually, you've done all the matches already. And even if they're good, if you've seen it three or four times. Right. And there's no story, it's not quite the same anymore. Yeah. The pair would actually have a rematch at World War Three, which almost makes a show sound worth watching. <laughs> and as I mentioned at this point, at World War Three, that is, Dragon has since won the Super J crown. So he's actually defending it at that show as well. Okay, cool. It's sort of a warm-up for the match we get with Malenko at Starcade, uh, okay. the, the following show. All right. And as for Ray, his next pay-per-view match would be at Foul Brawl against your favorite wrestler, Super Calo. <laughs> right. It's just the hat and sunglasses you don't like, isn't it? It's, it's, it's weird. Like, they're all, like, sewn together. It's bizarre. Yes, I know. <laughs> we cut to Mean Gene Okerlund, who heard Dress Like a Biker and thought, that means dressing like I'm going out fishing, right? <laughs> Reel him in, Gene. Gene builds up the hotline, saying that they've seen people hanging around Hog Wild, and it may bear on who joins the NWO. So this is a rare hotline ad that might actually have some bearing on the actual show if the person spotted hanging out is the person who actually comes out near the end. Mm-hmm. 1-900-909-9900. Back to Tony, and he gives an overview of the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally as we get some shots of the crowd and motorcycles driving around. Heenan praises the custom paint jobs and power of the bikes. Some of them, he says, you only have to pedal three or four times to get up the hill. (laughs) Great exasperation in Tony's voice as he reacts to that. Yeah, right. Back to the ring for our second match, which is Scott Flash Norton versus Ice Train in a special challenge match. Referee for this one is Randy Anderson. Fire and ice explode. (laughs) It's basically icy hot, just the stuff you rub on for muscle cream. It's not that dangerous, really. Is it, uh, is it like when they showed on Mythbusters that if you uh, have a pallet full of ice and you drop thermite on it, it, it actually detonates? I would summarize the story pretty well, actually, yeah. <laughs> there you go. So the story is that these two were tag team you know, very recently. They hadn't been going that long. It's only been a few months. The story I did is that a previous class of champions... They also tag match to, of all teams, the Rock and Roll Express. Oh, wow. Yeah. Kind of hang around WCW. I think longer than you would think, because I think they would come in and out, I believe. By the way, is it just me, or is it slightly weird that one of the longest running tag teams in wrestling history has the word Express in it? Mm-hmm. Like, like, long length of time and Express don't sound like they should go together. <laughs> it's a very long trip. Also, the match that sets up the breakup happened on main event and not, you know, Nitro. Okay. That's, I guess that's the level of storyline importance they're giving to Fire and Ice. Apparently, in real life, the two did not get along. They've mm. since done num- numerous shoot interviews over the years. It's not like a hatred thing, just they weren't... They weren't... Uh, Compatible? Yeah, there you go. They weren't like... Yeah, the personalities weren't in sync. Okay. One's more of a veteran wrestler like uh, Norton and one's more of a cumber guy. They don't feel the same way. So, important thing for this match as well, which is mentioned but not explained very well. So, on the Go Home Nitro, Giant defends his title against Craig Pittman and shockingly defeats him with very much ease. Afterwards, because he's so sort of revved up and mad about the story going on, he decides to chokeslam his manager, Teddy Long. Ah, uh, okay. Which is how they write him off TV for a bit. <laughs> 
And that's also Ice Train's manager, correct? correct? Yeah. On WWE Saturday Night, which I taped and ran before this, the Giant cut a promo talking about what he's going to do. Ice Train comes out, gets in his face, says you shouldn't attack the manager, and gets beaten up by the Giant. He notably gets thrown shoulder first into the ring post on the outside, and then left there lying, which is a great way to build this guy after his match, honestly. <laughs> Admittedly, it is a giant, but it's still kind of weird that they haven't just get beaten up right before the show. A little, a little bit, I can see that, yeah. They're starting to try to go for that chaotic atmosphere, maybe, mm. a little more, where things can intertwine a bit, which is, that's a positive, I think. Yeah, no, sure. It maybe wouldn't be that bad if he weren't, you know, then going to face his former tag partner in what should be a big storyline match for him. Right. Now, you could have done it like if he comes out to berate the giant and he's attacked by Norton. That would There be- you go. Yeah. But the fact that he makes a challenge and then gets beaten up and left lying by somebody else does not look good for him before a big match. <laughs> so that's why when you have him see him on the show, he comes out with his shoulder and arm and basically half his body wrapped up. <laughs> yes. He's the Yeti. <laughs> he is. As Norton enters, the commentators discuss Norton and Train's history as fire and ice. Dusty says something about Norton having a different repetenda. Sure. I'm not sure what that means. According to Wiktionary, it may be a feminine form of repetendus, which derives from the verb repeto, which means to attack again, renew or repeat an action, recollect or demand. Whatever the case, Heenan says you can get some ointment for that. (laughs) Tony busts a gut as Dusty appeals to the heavens for support. (laughs) Ice Train makes his entrance, sadly wearing black and red. Wouldn't blue or white make more sense with his name? Yeah, right. As you mentioned, Al, his shoulder is mega bandaged. Mm-hmm. It's basically the uh, equivalent of the video game Hit Me Here light that boss creatures have. He's more bandaged than man now. Before the match starts, Tony asks what's going to happen if Hogan wins the title from the Giant tonight? Will the belt become NWO property? Dusty says no, no matter what, it's still the WCW title. Plus, Hogan is a contracted employee at this point, so (laughs) to be fair. Norton goes right for the injured shoulder and pretty much controls the match, hitting Train's shoulder again and again. Train occasionally fights back, but a single blow from Norton will usually stop that. Dusty mentions Train's being attacked by the giant earlier in the night, and Heenan's amazed at Train's ability to keep going, saying he should have just said, maybe next week. Mm -hmm. Tony and Dusty disagree. Of course. Train does an excellent job selling, showing that he's unable to even muster much strength for return strikes. He does finally manage to dodge a clothesline and hit a power slam for two, and hits some clotheslines with his good arm, but Norton just boots him in the gut, takes him down by the arm, and locks on an armbar. Tony is just giving credit to Train for not giving up when Train gives up. Yeah. (laughs) Tony is audibly disappointed in him. Mm -hmm. He'd have saved himself a lot of pain if he'd given up 20 minutes ago, Heenan says. That would have been like 15 minutes before the match started. (laughs) Yes, yes. Norton stomps Train once more for good measure as he exits, and Tony builds up Norton's work as a ringside guard on a recent Nitro, and says the NWO had better be watching him because you don't want to fool with him. Heenan agrees and says they'd better watch if they want to succeed, but hurriedly notes he doesn't want them to succeed. Of course. Thoughts on this one? It's a good match if you like big, meaty people hitting each other. (laughs) Who doesn't? Oh, yeah, of course. Everyone loves that. But yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting contrast to have Mysterio and Dragon and then followed by these two guys. It's not necessarily a bad contrast. 
if you can have really good matches that are distinct from each other, mm-hmm. as opposed to having, say, six tag matches or eight tag matches in a row. Yeah, I I just recently went back and listened to our uh, Starcade 89 one, mm. if you remember, that's the double tournament show. I do remember that one. Where I was just complaining the whole time about, how many tag matches are you going to make me watch in a single night? <laughs> if only you knew that wasn't the most you'd watch in one night. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> like I said, I'm kind of torn on the idea that they have him get beaten up before his pay match. At the same time, they make a good story out of it. And I kind of got the feeling he wasn't going to beat Norton anyways. Because mm-hmm. you sort of want the redemption story for him. If he wins right away, there's no reason for a follow-up match. Yeah, yeah. I think you kind of got to do it as a longer... When you do a tag team breakup angle, unless it's so monstrously huge already, like, you know, a Hogan and Savage Mm -hmm. Mega Powers thing, you really got to have a few matches in it before you have the good guy win it. Yeah, exactly. So at least playing Devil's Advocate here, this way, it gives him a good excuse for why he doesn't win the match. Right, yeah. He's working at like 50% capacity, probably less in storyline, so... Mm -hmm. Going down to defeat while fighting fairly admirably is good. Mm-hmm. He looks like he's really, really trying, and just his body isn't mm-hmm. capable of it at this point because, like you said, he's been beaten up badly. I'm always a little bit torn on having faces tap out, and mm-hmm. well, I guess verbally submitting at this point. But you know, it, it works here. I think okay, but I could see doing this where he's attacked the injury area again, and it'll be pinned from that. Versus yeah. giving up on there. I could see that or having him do the pass out thing. You know, yeah, that would work That could work as well. Though I, I think it is like that's something that can be overused as well. You, you kind of oh, yeah. do need to sometimes have people actually submit mm-hmm. to holds. And I think it does damage you a little bit to have that happen. But at the same time, like you said, they've got a clear excuse for it. He's got a major, what's clearly meant to be a major injury to this mm-hmm. limb. So it makes sense that you would ultimately decide, right. yeah, I just can't do it anymore. And it gives Norton something to lord over him and, you know, something for him to get revenge on. So mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, this match was about 99% strikes to Ice Train's shoulder, but I didn't hate it. For one, it's pretty short. It's only like five minutes long, so it didn't overstay its welcome. It made its point, gave Train one or two hope spots, and then wrapped up before it got tiresome. The extreme focus and the way Train just can't manage to fight back do give it a very, very different feel. It's kind of like Luger versus Muda from, again, Starcade 89. Yeah, that's true. Just with less Luger selling. Right. Speaking of selling, Train does quite a good job at it, mm-hmm. even removing the power from his own strikes and looking like he only barely manages the couple slams that he does. Yeah, there's a nice bit where he pulls the strap down on the single on the one side so he can get his arm more mobility. Well. Mm-hmm. Good portrayal of a guy who wants to keep fighting but just can't. Versus an opponent who is all too willing to use his injury against him. I feel like I would be annoyed with this one if it went very long, but at only five minutes, it's it's fine. Mm. It's even, I would actually say, on the good side. Yeah. I mean, the last Scott Norton match we covered was a 20-minute time limit draw. So. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And that wasn't a bad match either. No, yeah, that was perfectly acceptable. Right. I do have a question, though. What makes this a special challenge? Um, The arm bandages? Okay, sure. It, w- it was especially challenging for Ice Train. That, that is true, yes. <laughs> I can't argue with that. At Fall Brawl, there'd be a rematch between the two, which would unsurprisingly be a submission match. Okay. So at least the verbal submission, in this case, builds up to another match. Right, yeah. Like I said, if you at least use that as part of the angle going forward, then I, I'm fine with it. Mm. 
Tony throws to clips from an interview that Ric Flair gave on an episode of WCW Saturday Night, sitting in street clothes in front of purple lockers. Title cards come up to highlight the subjects that he was addressing, starting with the attack on Arn Anderson. Hogan, Nash, Hall, whoever. You hurt my best friend. Didn't matter whether I'm standing the sting and Luger. Through association, they could be in an ambulance with me. They could be in my home. If Arn Anderson's down, I'm there. I mean, Arn Anderson and I have been up and down this road for 15 years, man. We have bled, we have sweat, and we've cried. The emotion in this business is huge. It's hard. It's hard on you personally. I had decided in my own mind that Hogan and the New World Order and the Horsemen could coexist. But then they jumped on Art Anderson, and it became a whole new awareness, a whole new ballgame. This is our business. We stand top by getting involved. The other real friend in life is, is, is this company. This company is the best. I'll stand up for it. I'll fight for it. It's on now. It's on the table. It's us. It's survival of the fittest. It doesn't matter whether I like Sting or Sting likes me or Luger. It's one company now trying to be taken over by another. If the New World Order wants to make their mark and to really score, you've got your opportunity now because the horsemen are involved. Two of us can't survive. Two companies can't survive. Go to bed with that thought tonight. Tony says Flair means what he says and speaks for all of WCW. I thought this was an excellent and very, very different promo from Flair. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's not a trace of his usual bombastic style. No. He's deadly serious, speaking slowly and calmly, but with anger and emotion under the surface. What's great here is he doesn't abandon his character to just become a face all of a sudden. Instead, he acknowledges that he'd been prepared before to just let the NWO do its thing, even knowing what they'd done so far. But that the injury to his friend both made it personal and brought home the sheer scale of the threat. So this isn't a good guy promo. Mm. It's a promo from a villain who sees the necessity of putting aside his differences with the good guys, a villain you can start to feel some sympathy for. Sure. Man, there are some great promos in the early days of the NWO angle. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I said, it's nice to see serious flair, no wooing, you know, mm-hmm. not, none of the catchphrases. It's as much as you can get as a serious, straight-laced Ric Flair promo you're going to get, yeah. Yeah, I think the last time that I can think of that we heard one like this was um, Starcade 93, mm-hmm. when he's building oh, up yeah. to the match with Vader, where he has that very heartfelt one with, I think it's Gene that rides with him in the limo on the way to the yes. show. Yes, oh yeah, that one, yeah. Yeah, I remember that one just being like, wow, that's... That's really different for a Ric Flair. Mm-hmm. And this one is is kind of like that. It's, it's this utter change in tone where it's still recognizably the same character, but he's setting aside all the big bombastic bits and just being the human side yeah. of the character. Was it the first Russell War where he has the promo after the match and he's attacked by Funk? Because that had a s- yes. somewhat similar. Yeah, a little bit of that too, yeah. We get some more shots of Sturgis as Tony talks up some of the other events, including some at the Buffalo Chip Campground. Heenan is in disbelief at that name, as am I. 
Yeah. After an ad on Peacock, we come back for an ad for WCW's Hog Wild shirts and denim jackets. Jimmy Hart appears at the end to just announce that he has both of them. It's kind of weird that they don't have him do any kind of more character-driven line, you know? Yeah, they have like an hour to shoot the promo before the, the plane, I guess. <laughs> or, or just like, at least have him do his wild laugh. But yeah. they don't have him do anything. It's just like, hi, I'm Jimmy Hart and I have a jacket. <laughs> if anyone would have a jacket, it would be Jimmy Hart. That That is true. That is true. Sadly, the phone number is no longer active, so I can't get you one, Al. I know you would want one for your birthday. Oh. Our third match is Bull Nakano with Sonny Ono versus Medusa in the Battle of the Bikes. The referee for this one is Randy Eller. Oh, see, I described it as the loser's bike gets smashed match. <laughs> Less eloquent. They actually have a logo for it and everything, I believe, that actually just says Battle of the Bikes. Right. So. <laughs> yeah, there's a bit of a not so subtle racial element to it, obviously, that Japanese bikes against American bikes. Yeah, yeah. It's not real bad, it's just like on the edge. And to be fair, with that a little bit anyway, though I know we're going to likely critique this crowd a little bit later in this show too, <laughs> but to be fair to that, there's a little bit of it just being sport bike versus Harley, True. you know, hog type of bike as well, because that's also a thing without even getting into the different nationality type of stuff. Mm. Bull was brought into WCW due to the shared history between Medusa and herself. When she was Alundra Blaze, right, in yes, WWF? Yes, correct. So of course, all of that was in WWF. And in fact, they were fighting over the belt that Medusa famously threw in the trash <laughs> when she first debuted. So it's weird that they're still fighting sensibly over that same issue. You know, she disrespected that belt, which she replaced with nothing. If you really wanted to go interesting with this, you could have had Bull be the face. Mm -hmm. By coming in and saying, I fought you honorably for that title and you disrespected it. Oh, yeah. I realize that they'd be dealing with the other company's belt, but that would actually be a genuinely interesting way to do the angle. Right. They'd never feature a WWF belt on pay-per-view, would they? <laughs> Perhaps not knowingly. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That's, that's really what it comes into. Yeah. As Al pointed out earlier, both competitors will bring their motorcycles to ringside for this match, and the winner gets to break the loser's bike with a sledgehammer. Tony says a lot of the bikers here will want to see a bike destroyed, and Dusty agrees, as long as it's not their own. Yeah. Ono rides Nakano's bike out. Nakano's blue and gold outfit is awesome. Mm -hmm. Her anti-gravity hair is, as always, amazing, but it seems particularly tall today. Thing of the mountain air, I think, yeah. <laughs> Heenan jokes that she could wear Abe Lincoln's stovepipe hat. Yeah. Ono parks the bike, a Honda Sport bike with the rising sun motif, and a crew member brings a wood block over to give the kickstand something solid to rest on on the uh, dirt ground. Mm -hmm. Then he places it wrong and leaves so that poor Ono has to adjust it himself. <laughs> poor guy. Medusa comes out riding her pink Harley. And Tony mentions that she was one of several performers who rode all the way from Minneapolis to Sturgis on her motorcycle. And name drops Sting, Eric Bischoff, and the Steiners as other participants. Heenan says he would have joined them in his limo, but his driver doesn't like dirt roads. <laughs> Dusty says this ain't going to be pretty, then starts digging a hole for himself by saying Nakano isn't pretty, digs deeper by saying he's seen pretty women who aren't pretty, even deeper by implying that they're in Sturgis, and finally just gives up and says, Medusa better stay away from Nakano's power. <laughs> you ever start a sentence and just know it's not coming out right, but everything you say to try and fix it makes it worse? Yeah. 
As Medusa gets in the ring, Ono comes up to argue with the referee, seemingly asking for the sledgehammer that's meant to be used to break the loser's bike. The ref visibly goes to hit him with it, and he backs off. (laughs) Tough referee. However, that does provide enough of a distraction for Nakano to nail Medusa in the back with dunchucks, while Medusa is watching Ono. Nakano spins them expertly in between hitting Medusa, as the ref clearly sees that, but tries to pretend he just happened to turn away. (laughs) Dusty absolutely delights in saying, Numchucks! (laughs) As Nakano flings Medusa around by her hair, earning a one count with an arrogant cover, Tony wonders who's going to get to use the sledgehammer on a bike. Dusty misinterprets that and corrects Tony that Nakano used numchucks, not a sledgehammer. (laughs) He then claims that's Japanese for sledgehammer. Nakano earns one off a slam as Medusa bridges out, and Medusa gets two off some running takedowns. Nakano pretzels Medusa with what Dusty calls a combination scorpion deathlock and an elevated surfboard, the Bulls Angelito. But Medusa won't give up, so Nakano DDTs her for two and works a chin lock, but Medusa fights back and they trade two counts. Medusa Frankensteiner, Nakano Lariat, Medusa German Suplex, Nakano Back Suplex. The ref actually kicks the camera sliding into count for that one. Medusa Sunset Flip earns two, but Nakano Back Suplexes her for the three count. Ono and Nakano celebrate, but the ref tries to wave them off but Ono has already run to Medusa's bike with a sledgehammer. Ono poses for a generous amount of time to let everyone get in position, then hits Medusa's bike on the padded seat exactly once before the referee stops him, with Medusa stealing the hammer a moment later. Medusa chases him with the sledgehammer, but then stops at the Honda and starts smashing it with the sledgehammer. I imagine that Nakano's bike is just for the show while Medusa's is actually hers, based on the relative damage. (laughs) Yeah, right. Heenan claims the motorcycle might explode. <laughs> Dusty is fine with that. I, I think an explosion might be bad yeah. for the nearby fans. <laughs> it's a Honda, it's not a Ford Pinto. <laughs> That's true. Medusa does rather unimpressive damage to the bike, in all honesty, with the only big shatter being the headlight, but she does at least manage to tear off some of the paneling after a few hits. She shoves the bike over. I think everyone probably thought that would look a lot more destructive than it did, mm, but the Honda's yeah. too well made. Yeah. Tony finally theorizes that, in fact, Nakano's shoulders have been down for the three count in that final spot, and the ref indeed raises Medusa's hand, so it seems that he's right. Medusa lands a few more blows on the down bike and finally manages to give it some visible cracks, but looks exhausted. (laughs) It does serve as a good ad for the durability of Honda motorcycles, I guess. Yeah, fair enough. Thoughts on this one? I thought it was good, but not amazing. Mm -hmm. These two, as mentioned, they work together a lot both in Japan and in the WWF, fighting over the title. Both, in fact, held the title for a brief period of time. It's a weird thing where Nakano actually wins the title originally in Japan as a big festival, Mm -hmm. which WWF doesn't show, just kind of says, oh, that happened, Mm. which is kind of a shame. With that in mind, obviously, they know how each other's work. They have their timing down really well. Just for me, there's nothing they do that's really all that exciting. Mm -hmm. It's good, basic mat work and basic slams and drop kicks and stuff like that yeah it's all perfectly solid but it never quite feels like it rises above yeah yeah exactly other than the ending nothing bad happens honestly mm-hmm. the thing with the ending is it's it's so weirdly vague for a match of this stipulation and for this crowd quite frankly right yeah because they're going for the Medusa puts her shoulder up at the last second on a move 
So the condo shoulders were down, pinning herself on a suplex, mm-hmm. which is funny because she did a suplex earlier, which I don't know if that was supposed to be the finish before and they kept going. Because she does the back suplex with the bridge, the kick out of two, and then they just do it again later. Yeah, I, I think that's just two separate spots, but right. yeah. It's just weird to repeat it then. It is, it is weird for it to be basically the same move, yeah. I could see if they did the back suplex where you sort of rotate and land on the person. That could work. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's more of a second top rope kind of move, but yeah, it's, it's not a very flashy match, but it's not bad. Mm-hmm. I just wish they had a more clean, obvious finish for these two. Yeah, yeah. I think they, they kind of had to do it that way because they wanted there to be tension about uh, Medusa's bike being in danger, mm. but then they wanted her to actually get to do the breaking of the Honda, obviously, for the crowd. So they're kind of stuck then with a weird finish, but that in and of itself deadens the response that they're getting. Yeah. Because the crowd's like, wait, what just happened? I, I would have honestly just, Medusa needs to win, Medusa wins. Maybe she wins like, she, like a counter roll up of some kind. And Nakano, after the match, attacks her and takes the hammer. Yeah, have Nakano and, and Ono say, no, even though we lost, we're going to try and break yeah, the bike. Because they're, they're bad guys. They could do exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Where I think you and I, when we first watched this, both thought, wait, didn't Medusa lose? Yeah. And then it made her look like the bad guy because she was disobeying the matchstick. <laughs> but then I finally figured out, no, wait, she actually did win. It was just really unclear. Yeah, I think other than the weird ending, this was a nice little contest of Medusa's speed versus Nakano's power. Nakano can hurl Medusa around with ease, and every strike from her hurts, but Medusa does manage to surprise her periodically and get the advantage and start to wear her down. So it feels like they're setting up for a longer storyline of Medusa's individual strikes eventually adding up, but then the match just kind of unceremoniously ends. Mm. So I agree with you. Despite some good action, it kind of feels disappointing as a result. Like it's the beginning and middle of a good eight to 10 minute match, but they forgot to write the conclusion. Yeah. Because th- this is only barely longer than the Norton versus Ice. Yeah, they're both about five minutes long. Yeah. I think it's, fortunately, it's the timing of when this match is happening. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, look at it. I said Medusa left the WBF because they weren't using the vision very much, threw the belt down, and then they gave her nothing to do except fighting. Any random woman like, um, here's a Sherry originally when she comes in, and um, what's her name? The crazy screaming lady. She fights her on pay-per-view as well. Ludovashan. Ludovashan, thank you, yeah. It's not for a while they go, should we have a belt for the women, and should we hire more than one on a full-term basis and have the yeah. wrestle? So I think if this had happened maybe two years later, and they had a women's division in two years, I don't think they even do at that point, seven, mm-hmm. 97, then this could have but given the time it actually needed. Or been in Japan where it would have gotten the time it needed. Yeah, I think you, you give this another few minutes for them to fully have room for a, a storyline to breathe, kind of. And I think it, it becomes quite good. Yeah, they really took time to hit spots, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, good action, weird ending. Mm-hmm. So the two would have a follow-up match at Class 28, which would air on the Thursday after this show. Oh, okay. So what? how many days is that? That'd be five days? Is that right? Or yes, I think so. It's late, and I can't do math. Sorry. <laughs> they would also have one more match, which would be on pre-taped WCW Saturday Night, which would air the following Saturday. Okay. After the match, there is a promo where Nakano and Ono are gloating about how they won. By the way, they won, and they first introduced the idea of having a women's championship in WCW. They say he wants championship for Nakano to hold. <laughs> Which, of course, as you know, 
she's not even in the tournament. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea is introduced in storyline as Ono giving her a belt to win. Then she's never even contention. <laughs> Medusa wouldn't have another pay-per-view match until Starcade 96. Hmm, wow. So yeah, not doing a lot with her, just part of why she left the other company because it would Yeah, it's a lot. real shame that that happens, especially as you noted, because you know, she left the other company because she was feeling like she wasn't getting enough opportunities there. Yeah. And then they bring her in and just proceed to basically do nothing with her yep. for a long time and really never end up doing that much with her, unfortunately. Yeah. Because she is a very talented performer. It's it's a it's a massive shame. She is the sort of performer I think that you could have built a women's division around. Yeah. Bring in some of those performers that they bring in on a temporary basis, get some of them more permanently. Yeah. You genuinely could have started the greater amount of women's wrestling back then that we see these days Mm -hmm. around a performer like Medusa. Absolutely. One of the reasons why Bulanakano is not in the tournament, which happens at the end of 96, is that at this point she's segueing out of pro wrestling. Right. Where she decides in 1997 to become a pro golfer. Yes. It's just a weird thing to think of, that lady with the blue spiky hair screaming and throwing people. I can't imagine that she wore that on the golf course, but oh my gosh, I wish she wore that on the golf course. At least once, yeah. She like come out and it's basically like Mario Golf. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Tony mentions that you can chat with WCW wrestlers on CompuServe. Remember <gasps> when that existed? Barely. <laughs> I had forgotten about that. We get a great shot of the two Steiner brothers typing on laptops. Scott is dressed disturbingly similarly to Dusty, though fortunately you can't tell if he too is wearing short shorts. <laughs> it's implied that they're chatting on CompuServe, of course, but Rick is apparently actually playing a racing game instead, and Scott asks where he got it and tries to muscle in on it before deciding to finally be the responsible brother and actually answer fans' questions. <laughs> you know what he's playing? Dusty asks. He's playing one of them games. Well, yes, that would be right, I suppose. But yeah. could you be more specific? Is it you know, Top Gear, Need for Speed? Road Rash? Yeah. It'd be weird to go to Sturgis and play Road Rash. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's appropriate or strange. <laughs> yeah. Like, I really like these bikes. I want to play Road Rash instead of being around the actual bikes. <laughs> Tony starts to throw to the next segment, but apparently the folks telling him what's next are having a disagreement, so we can't find out if he's throwing to Okerlund or not. Heenan settles it by throwing to Dean Malenko instead for our next match. So our fourth match is Dean Malenko versus Chris Benoit with Woman and Elizabeth. Referee for this one is Nick Patrick. Kevin Sullivan, both in real life and in kayfabe, had his wife, Woman, stolen from him by Chris Benoit. Part of this very awkward, even then, but especially now, watch storyline. So the way they expanded it, because I guess they realized they can't have Benoit and Sullivan wrestle each other 20 times, only like, you know, six, is that they have him basically sick other people on Benoit, sort of like put a bounty on him, basically. Mm-hmm. So for this storyline, he makes a deal with Malenko, where he's able to negotiate Malenko getting a Cruiserweight title shot, which will happen, in exchange for him taking out Benoit. Okay. As Malenko makes his entrance to his excellent JRPG Evil Empire music, Dusty builds up Malenko and Benoit as two of the best mat technicians in WCW. Malenko enters alongside Jimmy Hart, who can be heard promising that he'll take care of something for Malenko, as long as Malenko takes out Benoit. 
Malenko and Hart shake hands and Hart exits. Tony says Hart promised Malenko a title shot, but seems to say it was one he got this morning against Rey Mysterio Jr., not an upcoming one. So this is Malenko fulfilling his end of the bargain. It's a bit confusing because when Hart talks about it, it sounds like it's upcoming. Yeah, it happens at the Clash show that happens on Thursday. Hmm. Or at least one of them does, unless there's more than one match. Yeah. <laughs> there's definitely a Cruiserweight title match between Malenko and Mysterio at that show. Weird. Benoit enters next, accompanied by two devilish women, according to Dusty. (laughs) Woman has a very sparkly American flag top, though oddly the pattern is reversed. The stars are on the right and the red and white stripes are on the left. I thought someone looked off about that. Yeah. Yeah. We get another helicopter shot and the commentators actually have to discuss which WCW helicopter is doing the camera shots. (laughs) They hired more than one? (laughs) Well, they both made such good offers, so you can't pick, you know? Gosh, how much money did this company blow on this (laughs) pay-per-view? Speaking of Benoit and the Horsemen, Dusty notes that Benoit has his own repetendant. (laughs) (laughs) I still have no idea what he means. I'm guessing maybe reputation, but Hmm. doesn't sound particularly like that. No, it doesn't. Malenko and Benoit get in each other's faces and rapidly trade strikes as Dusty and Heenan discuss the strengths of the current generation of Horsemen. Two counts off a Malenko suplex, Malenko elbow drop, Benoit leg drop, Benoit back elbow multiple times, and for both with a complex and rapid counter-wrestling sequence that must be seen to be believed. Heenan calls Malenko the man of 3,000 holds, but says that Benoit is at that level too. Malenko short-arm scissors, as Heenan name-drops Pat O'Connor for a blast from the past. (laughs) But Benoit rolls backwards to earn two, then gets to his feet, picks Malenko up with the hold still on, and suplexes him. It's an amazing visual. Oh my gosh, yeah. Can you imagine, like, the balance and strength necessary to pull that off? Right? Yes. Wow. Well, how do you practice that? Yeah, just... It's one of those things where, like, who had the idea to do that first, you know? (laughs) It's like, who's, who's crazy enough, like, either to say, yeah, I think I can do that, or to say, yeah, I'll let you do that to me. Yeah, right. I'm confident you won't drop me on my skull. Further two counts from a Benoit elbow drop and snap suplex, but Malenko smoothly escapes from an abdominal stretch. Dusty wonders what the new aluminum will bring, (laughs) as Tony gently corrects that it's millennium. Yes. Malenko and Benoit collide on a crossbody, but are up at five. Benoit snap suplex and swan dive headbutt get two and nine tenths. Woman is incensed at the count, but Dusty defends Patrick's reliability. Mm Mm-hmm. Malenko reverses a tombstone pile driver to his own for multiple two counts, but Benoit rolls him up on the Texas Cloverleaf for two. A Malenko crossbody sends both outside, where Benoit tries to send Malenko to the post, but Malenko reverses. Back in, Malenko is too slow to climb, and Benoit superplexes him down, but hurts himself as well. Both are up at six. Two counts off a Benoit scoop slam, Malenko German suplex reversal that hurls Benoit, a Benoit roll up, and a Benoit clothesline, a Malenko clothesline, a Malenko belly-to-belly, a Benoit Northern Light suplex, and a Benoit bridging German suplex. Heenan now says Malenko has 2,500 holds, and Dusty points out that's lower than before, so Heenan upgrades it to 4,000. <laughs> Five minutes remain. Benoit locks on what looks like Jericho's lion tamer, but Malenko gets the ropes. Malenko ducks outside after an elbow, but Benoit dives out after him, sends him back in, and does some crazy kind of spider pin for two. Maybe he should wear Mysterio's outfit. Yeah, right? 
Two counts off a Malenko forward roll suplex counter, Malenko backslide, Malenko roll up, Benoit pins on an exhausted Malenko, Benoit powerbomb, Malenko superplex, Malenko Oklahoma roll, and Malenko powerbomb. As time expires. There must be a winner, though, so Patrick gives them five minutes of overtime. Dusty is thrilled. Malenko gets in Benoit's face, then Patrick's, so Benoit slugs Malenko from behind and back suplexes him for two, then tilt-a-whirl backbreakers him for two. Dusty calls that a whirly-burly backbreaker. Why not, yeah. Dusty claims they've used, quote, everything in Mike Tenay's dictionary of pinning somebody. I, I really want that book. <laughs> yeah, it'd be pretty fun. Benoit locks on Malenko's own Texas Cloverleaf. Malenko struggles, taking every opportunity to build up his own finisher. Mm-hmm. But he won't give in, so Benoit lets go and grabs his leg. But Malenko enziguries him, and both are down for seven, and again after they collide head-to-head. Benoit works the leg and uses a leg scissors for two. Malenko writhes in the hold and gets the ropes. Benoit grabs him, but Malenko rolls him up for two right at the bell. Patrick gives us another five minutes. Malenko can barely stand, but he manages to catch a kick and hit a dragon screw leg whip. Sadly, Mike Tenay is not there to let Dusty know what that move is called, so you don't get the hilarious reaction until Starcade 96. Yeah, it's <laughs> a shame. Benoit dragon suplex for two, and they trade suplex counter attempts until Benoit drops on top of Malenko for two. Malenko dodges a drop kick and locks on the Texas Cloverleaf. But behind Patrick's back, Woman takes Benoit's hand. Malenko spots Woman, and he goes to grab her instead, so Benoit pulls his tights and uses the ropes to pin him for the three count and the win. Malenko lies distraught in the ring, as Benoit immediately rolls out to celebrate with Elizabeth and Woman, making the horsemen sign. Dusty bemoans that end to such a great match. Tony says, as far as the Dungeon of Doom are concerned, then, Malenko didn't hold up his end of the bargain. Heenan praises the match, and says there were moves he'd never seen before. Dusty is full of praise for Malenko and the battle that he fought. Thoughts on this one? Understandably, given the pair, it's a very rough and tumble, but also very technical match. Mm -hmm. It's a good mix of a bit of what we got in the first match, with the technical side Dragon has with his power move, but are very precise. And a little bit of the big meaty men hitting each other, you get just with smaller meaty men yes. in this match. Yeah, good point. Just kind of take the first two matches and combine them. <laughs> and yes. I think you kind of have this one, yeah. If only they could have worked a bike in it, we could have made all three matches. There you go, yeah. Kind of go put a horseman symbol on a bike or something. Yeah. <laughs> Again, it's Malenko and Benoit. They don't have bad matches against each other. At worst, they have matches that are good, but there's no story, which is kind of what this is. Really, the story is just Malenko is a hired gun, mm-hmm. which is fine. And Benoit is just is a heel with his managers and everything. It'd be nice to have more to story in a match, but it's hard to complain when these two wrestle. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of the thing. I'm of two minds about the length. Obviously, having a longer, well-constructed match like this is not bad. But I think they kind of lost the crowd a bit when they went to a second overtime. Mm, yeah, a little bit, maybe. Maybe you can argue that's an issue of the crowd, per se. But I think any crowd, we kind of get a little restless because they think the match is building crescendo and then it stops. You know, okay, let's keep it going. That's fine. But then they stop and keep it going again. You think maybe if they 
did a single 10 minute overtime and had the ending just happen as part of that hmm. rather than having that second break in there that stops the moment. It's definitely again. the break for sure. I don't yeah. think yeah, I don't think the match itself is too long. I think it might be a good thing. Yeah, I think you could do an identical match length but just not have that second break in there and I think you'd be fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's not much they really repeat as well. Mm-mm. I mean, they both get to do the bridge out of a pin spot. Yes. Like they're doing it slightly better but Again, it's it's hard to really nitpick these kind of matches. They don't they don't really mess things up. The only thing you really get repeated is the superplex spot. They both do one, mm-hmm. but it's a superplex. Do you yeah. mind? Yeah, <laughs> right, right, yeah. I like the idea that they have this big, hardly fought match. They really technical, and then in this case, I think the T finish kind of works. If you're really committed to Benoit being a heel, I think this works. You show he can do all this stuff, and then he cheats to get the victory at the end. It really tells the story that way. Mm-hmm. As long as you don't do it too often, I think it's fine. Wow. Just wow. Mm-hmm. This was an exceptional, lengthy, hard-fought match with an absolute ton of variety. Every time I thought that I'd seen everything they had, they went further and introduced a new element. They're some of the best pinning trade-off sequences I have yet seen and some truly excellent counters. And through what Wikipedia tells me is a 26-minute, 55-second match, these two do not slow down. No. They kept going full tilt well past the point where I am sure that they had to be exhausted. Oh, sure. Heck, Nick Patrick looked exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) But even exhausted, Malenko and Benoit are still crisp and precise with every single move. This is a showcase match for these two's potential. And like you, Al, even though it's a bit of a cheap finish... I don't have a huge problem with it. These two had kicked out of so much, gotten out of so many holds that you actually almost had to have one of them cheat to win. Nothing else would like feel like it should take them down at that point. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can call that a flaw, but I think it's also a compliment of how amazingly strong this made both of these guys look. Mm-hmm. I think everybody already knew that Malenko and Benoit were amazing performers, but their ability to put on a clinic like this for almost 27 minutes outdoors in the summer heat had to demonstrate to any remaining doubters that these two would be two of WCW's most reliably excellent performers for years to come. Mm -hmm. Absolutely amazing match. Yeah. It's funny that they build up the whole new millennium coming up, because obviously both of them would leave in 2000. Yeah. Under circumstances that did not make WCW look very good. Yes. Yeah. That is the problem that they're relied upon to a point Mm -hmm. and trusted and, and given positions where they can be showcased, but they're never really ever allowed to grow beyond a certain level. And that's where they both end up making their exit. Yeah. This match shows at least why they were so relied upon. Looking at the managers at the ringside is kind of interesting as well, because with this and then in a later match, I don't think Elizabeth really does anything. It's kind of weird. She's only really shown, um, like, occasionally talking to woman. Yeah. But woman, I have to say, was doing a tremendous job in this match. She was doing a really excellent job at ringside of never taking over or anything, mm. but complaining at Nick Patrick on some of the counts and just looking ticked off at some of the some of the points yeah. when Malenko was in control. Like like I said, she doesn't draw attention to herself, but I thought it was really one of the stronger manager performances I've seen from her mm-hmm. uh, in the matches we've seen with her at ringside. Yeah, it's interesting. See, she does so much and then yeah. Elizabeth is kind of also there. It's yeah, weird. and maybe it's just that the camera didn't end up pointed at Elizabeth as much. I don't know, but it didn't feel like she did very much. Yeah. A woman is kind of Chewing the scenery a little bit. (laughs) A little bit, yeah. 
So Benoit would be rewarded for this 26-minute affair by getting a match against the Giant on the next Clash show, which happens on Thursday. The match would go 28 seconds. Almost one second per minute. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's weird. I watched it. I'm like thinking there has to be more to this, but so he goes to the corner for his match. He's going to take his jacket off. Sometimes he's distracted by a woman. Like he's, she's trying to pull it off and he's trying to pull it off. I don't mm. get it. Giant runs in, drop kicks him and choke slams him. <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's, that's a shame. I mean, I object to it less than I normally would just because of the giant. Right. I don't think there's too much dishonor in losing a match to Giant in under a minute, just like there's no real dishonor in losing a match to Goldberg in under a minute. Sure. But still, coming off of this strong a performance, you'd hope that they'd highlight him a little more. Yeah. And obviously, as mentioned, there's a match between Blanco and Mysterio for the Cruiserweight Championship on that show. Okay. Which thankfully goes a lot longer than 28 seconds. <laughs> Our fifth match is the Steiner brothers, Rick and Scott, versus Harlem Heat. That's Booker T and Stevie Ray, with Sister Sherry and Colonel Robert Parker for Harlem Heat's WCW World Tag Team Championship. Referee for this one is Randy Anderson. So when we last saw the Steiner brothers, they were working for New Japan back in North Korea in that lovely show. (laughs) They would go from there to actually working for ECW. People kind of forget they ever worked there before finally coming back in March of 96 to WCW for the first time in a few years. Quickly, obviously, their focus is win the tag titles, which at this point are held by Harlem Heat. The whole thing where Harlem Heat win them in this chaotic main event on Nitro, where Hall and Nash appear, but don't actually attack. They sort of appear at ringside, and while everyone's sort of gawking and trying to posture and scare them off, TV Ray just casually pinned Luger, who seems very annoyed at this, more annoyed at the distraction <laughs> than the fact that he was just pinned and lost his tag titles. By the way, I think that's the segment where uh, cops are at ringside with their hands on their guns. Yes, that is it. At least they don't draw them like in the Hogan segment on Spring Stampede 2000 was that. But Yes, yeah. But uh, still, that was like a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> the, yeah, the, the level here. Curiously, the Steiner brothers actually would briefly hold the tag titles after their return, they'd win them at a house show and then lose them again back to Harlem Heat at a different house show. And it never mentioned once on television. Mm-hmm. So it's like they got to win those titles again. We get shots of the rally and the crowd while the Steiner's music starts up. And Dusty <laughs> spots a woman in a bikini in the crowd and directs Tony's attention to her, but claims he's actually pointing out the nearby motorcycle. Sure you are, Dusty. Yeah. <laughs> Heenan claims the bikers gave him a trophy earlier, and Dusty gets a great line in response. Speaking of Bobby, there's a hot air balloon up there. (laughs) (laughs) Tony agrees that there's one in the air and one sitting to his right. (laughs) As Harlem Heat enters, accompanied by Parker and Sherry, Tony notes that Parker is the last man he'd want to play cards against. Parker, in a rare moment, is wearing a brown suit rather than his usual white one. Maybe he was wearing a white suit before he got there. All the dust is covered. It <laughs> could be, could be. There's a lot of gravel dust in that area. Like when we went around the Renaissance Fair when it was at um, the Largo area, mm-hmm. and that lot was so dusty. Oh. Anything you wore was just dark brown by the end of the day. <laughs> right. That can even count in the mud show. Yeah. <laughs> Stevie oddly proclaims that they're going to whoop the Steiners so bad, they'll ride their hogs back looking like two pigs. I'm. Not 
quite sure what that means. I don't get it. No, yeah. Not sure I follow that one. The crowd is, shall we say, not fond of Harlem Heat. Yeah, that's fair. Stevie and Booker yell at the crowd, and they get really riled up, inviting the Heat to come into the crowd to fight. Heenan asks the others if they join the NWO for the right price, and Dusty and Tony both deny it. Tony turns the question on Heenan, and he hesitates. <laughs> Tony asks for an answer, and Heenan says, well, if Tony and Dusty are holding their ground, then that's right, they should do that. Tony bemoans his own foolishness in asking a question he knew wouldn't be answered. <laughs> Heenan quietly advises him, don't trust Dusty. <laughs> As it turns out, that would be accurate about a year and a half later. That is true, yeah. Always listen to Heenan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he actually seems to seems to kind of get it. This is about when the engine revving and horns start. So, okay. Harlem Heat, and to a lesser degree, the Steiners, do work the crowd to get more reaction out of them. Mm -hmm. But it's a couple black dudes in the ring surrounded by a, a load of mostly white bikers who are aggressively shouting, making rude gestures, and revving motorcycles at them. It's a little uncomfortable. Yeah, for sure. Agitated, Booker shoves Scott, but turns to yell at the crowd again, so Scott beats him up and hits a double underhook powerbomb. Stevie charges him, but Scott superplexes him, and Rick lunges him with a Steiner line. The Heat flee outside, and the Steiners do their trademark pose in the ring. The bikes rev so loudly that it's hard to hear the commentary team. And it's apparently hard for them to hear each other, as Tony entirely misses a question that Dusty asked. <laughs> the Steiners dominate early, as Scott does well against Booker and Stevie in turn. Booker gives us a great, shocked look on a press slam with Stevie only getting in a bit of offense off an eye rake. Rick gets in to Steiner line Stevie for one and a half, and we're back to Booker, and the Steiners earn two off a Scott mega belly-to-belly -belly and a Rick suplex. But Booker gets Stevie to clothesline Rick. The Heat wear Rick down and earn two off of a Stevie elbow drop. Stevie chin lock, and Sherry advises him to break Rick's neck. The bikes rev up again. Back to Booker, who tries a leapfrog, but Rick catches him and slams him hard for two. Mm -hmm. Someone in the crowd has a Confederate flag. So, add that to the list of things making this crowd reaction uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The signers get back in control with a Scott dropkick, Scott STF, and Rick camel clutch chin lock, as someone in the crowd throws a water bottle into the ring. Booker gets Stevie to pull the ropes down on a whip, though, and Rick tumbles outside. Excellent subtle signals by Booker in this match. Mm -hmm. Scott accidentally distracts Anderson so Stevie and Sherry can beat Rick up outside. Back in, Booker goes for the Harlem sidekick, but Rick ducks, and Booker crotches himself on the top rope. But Stevie comes in to club Rick for two. Chinlock, and Heenan says, that won't make Scott give up. Tony notes, that's Rick. <laughs> Heenan says he can't tell them apart, and Tony helpfully notes Rick is the one with the mustache. <laughs> Rick fights free, but Stevie jump kicks him and tags Booker for strikes for two. There's so much revving and honking going on. Yes, yes there is. Rick dodges an elbow drop, but Booker spinaroonies up and smoothly hits the Harlem sidekick. Then wonderfully slowly, finger touches Stevie for the tag. <laughs> They just so like make finger guns at each other and touch fingers. It's yeah. like a, the E.T. tag, I guess. Yeah, there you go. Stevie earns two with a backbreaker followed by a suplex. 
a slam, and he tags Booker, but Rick dodges a second rope forearm and tags Scott, who decimates both Heat with forearms and Steiner lines, and gets two with an overhead belly-to-belly. Stevie saves with a leg drop, which looked pretty cool. Rick decks Stevie, and they end up outside, distracting Anderson. Booker holds Scott, but he dodges Parker's powder throw, which hits Booker, only for Sherry to throw more powder and hit Scott. Parker breaks his cane over Scott's head, earning Booker the three count and the win. I do want to know what Randy Anderson thinks happened while his back was turned there. Yeah. (laughs) Suddenly both guys have white powder all over them. Oh well, that just sort of spontaneously happens, right? Must be one of those unseasonal snowstorms that's made of salt. They just stopped about to have a brief coke party, you know? Yeah. Things go wrong. In fairness, the crowd did start hurling garbage, so maybe he just thinks both guys got clocked by some of that. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. The Heat make a quick escape with Parker and Sherry, and Rick checks on Scott as garbage rains down. Heenan says, Scott looks like he's out cold after eating a jelly donut. (laughs) The replays show Parker was hit right in the butt with some of the trash while he was clubbing Scott. Oh, wow. Thoughts on this one? That was a pretty fun match, putting aside the whole crowd aspect of it. It's a really interesting story they tell. They tell the story pretty much that the Steiners are just ridiculously powerful and fast and strong. So if you give them a chance to fight, they'll just chuck you around like bales of hay. Yeah. With the Heat, their whole thing is being really sneaky and really good with the tag team wrestling. Mm -hmm. All the negative stuff like you'd see in a Flair Anderson tag match, that kind of stuff. Stevie Ray, for his part, is never great in a match. But he's usually never a drag on a match either. That's kind of the thing with him. At worst, he's serviceable, but you'd rather see Booker in the match, just in general. But he's fine here. He's a valuable part of Harlem Heat. Yeah. I think we've said before, like, I don't really ever want to watch a Stevie Ray singles match. I've seen one of those, and that was enough. Yeah. But in Harlem Heat, getting in and out and doing his spots, he's perfectly good. And he's great as a character for for those as well. Yeah, Yeah, so... In their matches, as long as the balance is right, as long as it's like 60-40 Booker to Steve Ray, it's fine. Yeah. yeah. The finish is interesting because it's a lot of stuff going on. It's the thing where I think the commentary and the match, because they're not planned together, can sometimes be out of sync. Like I talked earlier at how, as he's praising Ice Train for not giving up, he gives up. There's a bit a few minutes before the finish where world-famous manager, Bobby Heenan, who knows a thing about it, says if you have more than a manager, you need to focus on the same thing. But in fact, them doing different things is what gets to eat the win. Because mm-hmm. they're both separately throwing powder, and then the one guy's got the stick. So, interesting how they're out of sync, but also in sync, which gets them to work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As for the crowd stuff, I like to think that the crowd just really into the Steiners. I know it's not what it is, or at least not easy to prove that's all it is, but if you can focus on that, you can go, hey, this match with Unconventional Crowd has got a lot of attention. It got the crowd responding. Mm-hmm. It's obviously better when they don't respond with throwing trash, but it's better than having no response. Yeah. Within reason. It's definitely an uncomfortable crowd reaction as far as it goes. Again, the Steiners and the Heat are both working to bring out a crowd reaction. Mm-hmm. So it's not like this just suddenly starts up. You know, the heat starts yelling at them. The Steiners actually do start, I think, making rev your engine motions and that kind of stuff. So it's not like it comes out of nowhere. But the 
the aggressiveness of it, combined with at least the one dude in the crowd that does show off the Confederate flag, makes you wonder about why this is so aggressive here. Yeah. The one thing I will say in the crowd's defense, at least, is they did not seem to have any problem with Ice Train. Yeah. Who is also black. Right. I just, I would wager there are certain people in the crowd, at least, one of whom shows himself on camera, Mm. who probably have a different reason for disliking Harlem Heat other than just they're against the Steiners. Right. I think it's a case, too, of veteran workers really sort of making the best out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because Heat realizes they're getting this reaction from a vocal minority. So they go all in. They make it about about how they're egging the crowd on and the Steiners get in on it, like I said. Yeah. If they were the faces acting innocent, like if these roles have been reversed and the Steiners were the heels... It would look really uncomfortable and awkward. So at least they make the best out of the situation yeah. by working the crowd. And you're watching at home, you no know, catch all the stuff. You can think, oh wow, they got look at the crowds all wild up over this match. It's great. Yeah. I think I, I will just say this is the match more than any of them that I think I was glad that the ring was raised mm. because you had that extra distance between the fans at ringside and the actual competitors. Yeah. Where they couldn't just like reach out and or easily jump in or something like that. Sure, sure. It just it definitely is a a bit uncomfortable is the best word I've got Actually, for it. If you look at the, the show, other than briefly, like the first match being past the ring area, no one really fights too much around the no. actual barricades. No, yeah. Probably because it's gravel, I think is a big thing, but yeah. Yeah. Interesting to note as well. Yeah, so given all that, this one is a little bit weird. But as you said, the match itself is pretty much fine. Mm-hmm. There's some great action. And honestly, I found it some of Harlem Heat's best teamwork that we've ever seen. I particularly liked Booker's quick signals to Stevie, as I mentioned, and to uh, his managers. The uh, team just really felt on in regards to that, which was interesting because the crowd was so distracting. And they kept pausing to yell at them almost as much as their opponent Scott will in the years to come. Yes. But I think the Heat just realized there were going to be some interruptions in the momentum for the crowd, so they worked extra hard on the other parts of the match. Yeah. The Steiners did their part, too, of course. I don't want to undersell that. No, no, of course. And everybody just had some amazingly harsh versions of their normal moves to pull out tonight. But yeah, again, the crowd just made the atmosphere really strange and a little worrisome. So normally I'm happy about a match getting a big reaction, but something just felt wrong and extra negative to this one Mm. so it made me happy that the heat got the heck out of there really really fast after the match was done yeah as well as the teams performed i did have some trouble keeping focused on this one just out of worry understandable so yeah harlem heat would go on to lose their tag titles to the most unsung team in WWE history the public enemy (laughs) the rarian lasts a total of 12 days officially it aired four days late on tape delay because it was on Ah. saturday night so it's really an eight-day rain, but officially it's a 12-day rain. I'll, I'll pad the numbers as much as I can for Public Enemy, so. <laughs> so to understand my biases there. The duo would then be challenged for the tag titles by the least unsung team in WWE history, the Nasty Boys. <laughs> I may not be a fan of them, in case you had picked up by now from any previous episodes. The oversung team. <laughs> yes, yes. Unfortunately, we won't get a lot of Steiner Brothers a bit after this. On a September 2nd Nitro, so about less than a month after this, Scott would take an injury in a match. It's nothing really major, but it was enough to keep him out of action until January. Tony throws to footage of the rally area, then to a video package of WCW's experiences with Sturgis. 
The piano music comes back for this as we see WCW's performers preparing for their road trip from the Mall of America in Minnesota to Sturgis, South Dakota. We see Sting, the Steiners, Bischoff, Mongo with his little dog Pepe dressed up as a biker and apparently bearing a tiny switchblade that Mongo shows off, Big Bubba, Paul Orndorff, who signs autographs, Medusa, who poses on her bike with an elderly lady who stays so still I thought she was a statue, (laughs) and more. Then we get footage of the actual trip, which it does genuinely look like all involved had a good time on. I will say I'm disappointed that Sting doesn't wear his face paint the whole time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Rick Steiner gives us a thumbs up, Mongo and Deborah flash the Four Horsemen sign, and DDP shows up to mug for the camera with a cigar. (laughs) I do have to say, seeing this massive metal and muscle riding along the road would have been pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Several wrestlers narrate about getting ready for Sturgis, enjoying the road, and their experiences at the rally. We get shots of the rally again as well, most notably including a guy whose ride is done up like the USS Enterprise, the original series model specifically. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. That's nice. A little less nice is the dude wearing nothing but a thong. Oh, yeah. The next shot is a dude wearing a helmet with a massive, and I mean massive, set of horns. Overall, fun video package, and it looks like the WCW folks had a good time on their road trip. So it's nice to see a little bit of their actual lives here. Well, they're at the Mall of America. I wonder if they got some pasta mania before they went the trip. I hope so. <laughs> That's a good question. Like, what happened to pasta mania when Hogan turned? Oh, yeah. Like, did it become NWO pasta mania? Did they, like, make a special black and white sauce that they pour on your noodles? They could do that, that squid ink uh, yeah. spaghetti, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Squid ink spaghetti is how it's selling. I'm sure they definitely sell that at a Mall of America uh, restaurant in 1996. <laughs> Our sixth match is Eddie Guerrero versus The Nature Boy, Ric Flair, with Elizabeth and Woman, for Flair's WCW United States Heavyweight Championship. Referee for this one is Randy Eller. At this point, Flair is not quite the elder statesman character, but he's definitely a very well-established character. Eddie's just going after him because he's got the title, and obviously beating Flair in 1996 still has a big notoriety to it. Notably, Flair would, would win the title from Conan, who, of course, is a friend and co-worker of Eddie Guerrero at Bash at the Beach. And it's definitely the most famous match at Bash at the Beach is that title match. <laughs> I can't think of anything else from that show. <laughs> the sun has mostly gone down, so the lights are on over the ring now. We get another helicopter shot of a hot air balloon. Guys... <laughs> These shots are already more money than you should have been spending. Don't waste the cash on shots unrelated to your show. Guerrero comes out with the inverted form of his usual jacket tonight. It's primarily red rather than primarily white. Mm -hmm. It is very sparkly. It is very sparkly, yes. He probably felt the need to keep up with Ric Flair. Speaking of, Flair comes out with Woman and Elizabeth. Flair is in a fluffy white robe with silver sparkles, which looks amazingly out of place at a biker rally. Mm -hmm. But it's Flair, so he doesn't care. I do admit that I would have loved to see Flair's version of a biker outfit, though. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. (laughs) Maybe he be-ropes his Harley. Ooh, yeah. There you go. Flair and Guerrero get in each other's faces and trade shoves. Guerrero beckons to Flair, but Flair just gives a woo- Guerrero looks supremely unimpressed. (laughs) A woman in the crowd apparently propositions Flair, who tells her when this is all over, it's him and her. 
That happened. Yep. <laughs> Flair tries to shove Guerrero and the ref around, but repeatedly gets knocked down. Slaps don't go any better for him, so he retreats momentarily, but gets back in. They run the ropes, and Flair catches Guerrero with what looks like it was to be a back suplex. Mm-hmm. But Guerrero seems to slip partway free and nearly lands on his face as Flair lands solidly on his right arm and takes a Guerrero boot to the back of the head for good measure. Mm. Ah. Flair screams in pain, clutching his arm, and Guerrero rolls out limping. That clearly was not what they meant to do. No. I'm guessing that Guerrero maybe was supposed to backflip free or something, but they just got their timing and momentum wrong. Yeah, I was trying to figure out if it was that or if it was that float over pain that I talked about with out of a back suplex. Yeah. Maybe, but yeah, I would think it's probably the flip over. Both guys understandably take some time to regain their composure, but they thankfully seem more upset than hurt. Yeah. Guerrero especially. You never want something like that to happen, but especially when you're getting what's really, honestly, a big chance for him. Yeah, he feels like he's frustrated with himself, I think, at that mm-hmm. point. Yeah. They do get back into it. Guerrero floors Flair with a punch, so Flair begs for mercy and flees outside. Back in, Guerrero awesomely headlocks Flair and backflips off the turnbuckle to bring him down, but Flair gets repeated two counts by rolling Guerrero onto one shoulder. Mm-hmm. Guerrero clearly blocks the other one going down, but the ref counts anyway. Guerrero gets too close as Flair again begs for mercy, so Flair pokes his eyes. Dusty, by the way, does a terrific job on commentary in this match, calling every one of Flair's attempts to cheat before they happen. (laughs) So you can really get a sense of the Dusty and Flair history. Yeah, right? Flair beats Guerrero up with some nasty chops and punches as the crowd chants for Eddie, but Eddie fights back and drop kicks Flair to ringside, then sends Flair out again with the clothesline. Flair begs for mercy, but Guerrero beats him up, earning a Flair flop. Flair eye poke. I don't think that really hurt him that bad, Dusty says. Flair punts Guerrero in the balls. That hurt him that bad, <laughs> Dusty says. But Guerrero earns twos with a crossbody and a clothesline, and even slaps on the figure four. He gets a two count with it, but Flair makes the ropes though Eddie does hold on a little longer as Tony notes that Flair had refused to break that hold on Chavo at an earlier occasion. Yeah, as part of the buildup, Chavo got beat up by Flair. More two counts off a rope walk Hurricanrana and a Tornado DDT, but Flair dodges a corner charge, but Flair Karma strikes for two. Flair dumps Guerrero outside, but he sunset flips in and grabs the tights, pulling them partway down for two. There's a full moon over Sturgis, boys, Dusty yells. (laughs) Guerrero gets Flair down with a headlock, but lets go and tries the frog splash, hitting it, but hurting his knee, so he's unable to pin. Clothesline by Flair, and he slaps on the figure four, and sneaks in some extra leverage from the ropes, then from woman, as the pained Guerrero unthinkingly lies back on the mat for the three count, giving Flair the win. Flair celebrates with the belt as Dusty bemoans Guerrero's one big mistake that cost him the title, praising his efforts. Heenan celebrates Flair's win and gives an elongated woo. <laughs> when I do it, it sounds more like a ghost, but I don't. <laughs> yeah. You, you gotta sound like it's air escaping from a balloon. <laughs> they get the proper woo. There you go. Thoughts on this one? Thankfully, it's as good a match as you'd expect. Even bearing in mind this night ninety six Eddie who not really hit his peak because as good as a face Eddie is here, 
Hio Eddie is like the definitive version of him. Yeah. And again, this is Flair 96, which obviously he would wrestle a lot longer and for some reason thinks he can wrestle in 2022. Please don't. That's all I ask. Even with that in mind, it's really good to see this match and see how well they work together here. As you were talking about when you watch this match, Flair is really up for Eddie's more unique offense. Yes, yeah. Because he can't wrestle a lot of guys that wrestle like Eddie, especially at this point. Maybe in like his touring NWA days, he might you know work Mexico for like a month. You get more of that. But working WCW, he's probably not getting any of that. Mm-hmm. So credit to credit due, he really can help sell and take those moves away. You would think someone over an old school wrestler like Flair can do. There's a lot of little nice touches here, like the fact that Eddie doesn't ever dive out and go after Flair on the outside. Yes. Because as, as they say, that's what Flair wants. Yeah, they bring up, you know, Flair will get you out there and then cheat somehow or run you into something hard. Exactly. So, yeah. It's a nice bit of storytelling that Eddie, even at this point in his career, is veteran and wise enough to not fall for that trick. <laughs> yes. Obviously, that one bit early on where they do something quite wrong and they fall over takes away from the match a little bit, but that happens so early, thankfully, you can almost forget it happened in the long term because Mm -hmm. they work so well later on. There's really no mess-ups after that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's definitely better when something like that happens in the beginning and they can recover and just work around it. Yeah, they recover really, really well from it. I think they're shaken briefly, but they really come back from it Mm -hmm. quite well. Especially doing more elaborate spots after that. <laughs> yeah. I could see if someone less experienced and less confident, maybe a little gun shy, to pardon the expression, of taking other moves after having one go wrong like that. Mm-hmm. It's a good showcase for Eddie, the fact that even though he loses, he doesn't really look bad in his loss. Like I said, he, just the one mistake he makes that fortunately allows him to, to lose there. I think, you know, they, they did have that near disastrous fall early on. And that shot of Guerrero standing outside the ring upset but trying to get his head back in the game is honestly one of the things that's going to stick with me from this show. Mm -hmm. But it is really great how well they recover. And they put together a really good match. Mm -hmm. It does have a few flaws that I kind of spotted. In particular, there's a surprising amount of repetition with the headlock and whip free spots coming up a lot. And then Flair's repeated beg for mercy spots. But in fairness, each time they do develop each of those have something different happen after each of them. Sure. It just kind of feels like maybe they had a few less moves planned than their match time actually needed to me. Hmm. Or perhaps maybe they did end up unable to do some of their planned spots after the accident if Flair's arm actually was hurt or something. Yeah, maybe. But still, I totally agree with you. I love that Flair was ready and willing to do a lot of Guerrero's big spots, like that Tornado DDT and the Rope Climb Hurricane Rana. Mm Mm-hmm. As you said, there's probably not a lot of guys that Flair fights on a regular basis that do that. Yeah. But he was totally down for it. Mm -hmm. He was dedicated to helping Guerrero look good, which is a generous, generous performance. Mm -hmm. Well, there were ways I felt like this could have maybe been stronger. It's still an impressive showing. And Flair does a lot to build up Guerrero here. So Guerrero comes out of this stronger, I think, even though he loses. Yes. This match for him is a testing ground. Mm Mm-hmm. If he can stand up and really deliver on a stage like this, yeah, with an opponent like he has, I don't think he absolutely succeeds. Yeah, absolutely. This elevates Guerrero, despite the fact that he loses the match, because he doesn't come out of it looking weak at all or anything. He he comes out as, wow, this guy went toe-to-toe with a former like 
ungodly number of time world champion. 13. Yeah, I think it's like 13 time at this point world champion and looked good the entire time. Honestly, that's a case where on a on a out of character standpoint, I think the fact that they had that problem, but then were able to come back from it even further establishes why WCW would be willing to continue relying on Eddie afterwards. Like Mm -hmm. something went wrong in the match, you came back. Yeah, you kept going and were able to perform at a high level still for the rest of it. As you said, other wrestlers might have gotten gun shy and hung back and said, "Ooh, man, I don't know. Can we go for this or that? Yeah, but it takes them just a few moments and then they're back into things doing well. So yeah, good, good match. Good Mm -hmm. match. Absolutely. Dusty raises a good point. He does question why Elizabeth and women are allowed to be ringside after noticeably cheating the last minute. <laughs> that is true. I guess wrestling logic says they can do whatever they want. <laughs> they do have manager's licenses, so. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. So there's not more storyline with these two, unfortunately. Obviously, their paths will cross again. Even in WWE, they wrestle in like 2000, 2003, something like that. There's not any big U.S. title matches basically the rest of the year, which is kind of weird because Flair stays champion for quite a while and he's on the shows. Like he's on Fall Brawl in the main event and he's involved in these things. The fact that he's U.S. champion doesn't seem to really matter that much. It's kind of disappointing when they have what should be the here's your testing ground to become world champion title and it's not being really used that way. Mm-hmm. And obviously, as we know, Eddie Guerrero would win the U.S. title at Starcade that year. When Flair is out and they get, they have, of course, a tournament. <laughs> we get yet more shots of Sturgis, and we cut to Mean Gene, who is with Jimmy Hart and the Giant. Giant stands there looking absolutely massive. Mm-hmm. Hart has his great Giant Hart and Sullivan faces tie. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I thank you very much. Look at that sight. Also, the sun about to set. Over the Black Hills here to the west of us at WCW's Hogwild and the 56th anniversary of this gigantic rally. With me right now, the WCW heavyweight champion of the world in this beautiful setting. I'm talking about the Giant along with manager Jimmy Hart. A little bit later on tonight, a title defense. We talk about the sunset, but some say the sun may be setting on world championship wrestling because of the new world order, Jimmy. Hogan, tonight's a giant step for you. Don't trip and fall because nobody's going to be there to pick you up. Giant, we talked about this earlier in the live show on TBS. You're going to be facing Hulk Hogan. Here's a man that you idolize. What is going through your mind as we speak at this hour? What's going through my mind right now is a long history of betrayal. When I was a kid, I was by far the biggest Hulk Hogan fan in the world. I'd believe that. Oh, wait, he doesn't mean size. <laughs> or the rest of the world did. When you came out on Nitro and you told the kids and the fans of the world to stick it, you reminded me of the pain you caused me. Well, believe me, Hogan, tonight in Sturgis, I'm going to be the one to stick it. I'm going to stick my hand right around your neck. I'm going to squeeze it till your eyes pop. And I'm going to drive your neck right through the ring. Hogan, ashes to ashes, and dust to dust. Tonight, I lay the hoaxer to rest. Well, that is setting the scene for the big head-on collision. As you know, the NWO, the New World Order, is very prominent here tonight. We're going to be seeing the Outsiders in a moment as they face Lex and Sting 
and the big title defense for the Giant as he defends against Hulk Hogan. Now, are we still going with the storyline that he's on the giant sun at this point? Um, I don't think so, though Heenan does reference Andre a couple times, but he doesn't reference it in context of, wow, this is Andre's kid or something. Yeah, or you know, talk about what he did to his father. Or anything. So I think we're kind of like maybe implying it, but never actually outright saying it, okay. but just leaving it at Hogan betrayed Giant in some unspecified fashion when Giant was a kid. Okay, fair enough. I could kind of take or leave Hart's part of the promo tonight. It's just there to let Giant pose impressively for a little bit longer, I think. But Giant does, again, do a pretty good job here. If plagued by the occasional odd wording, the multiple meanings of stick it, I think he thought would be clever wordplay, but it ends up sounding a little bit strange. A bit, yeah. But still, the central point that he knew Hogan was evil long before the rest of the world, again, does a lot to help us understand that he is, in fact, the good guy in this feud, which is essential after he's been a heel for so much of his time in WCW against the face Hogan. Mm -hmm. So it's not as good as the Nitro segment that we covered last episode, I don't think, but I still found it quite good. Yeah, I think Hart's can kind of weird place to talk about with the storyline aspect and the fact that he really can't do his crazy cackling heel character because they're, they're trying to be more generally more serious with the promos, mm-hmm. the flair and see giant. So he can't do his laugh really to accentuate a point anymore, or at least not as much as he definitely used to. Yeah, he's he's in a weird place, which I, I kind of like that they do this, but it's also understandably difficult on the performers that. When the NWO comes in, face and heel alike decide to oppose them, but it's not like the heels all suddenly become good guys. No. I think you were pointing out before we were recording, uh, you still have Hart doing things like taking out a bounty on Chris Benoit and hanging out with the Dungeon of Doom, who are cartoon supervillains, and still being a bad guy, but at the same time, he's fighting the NWO. Yeah, and he's mandating the giant who's the bastion of hope against the... Yeah, even though the giant... Also, like, beat up Ice Train earlier just for getting in his face. Yeah. Neither of these guys is really portrayed as necessarily a good guy, but they're still portrayed as the protagonist in this feud. Yeah. It's like Payback, I think, the Mel Gibson one. Yes. Where you're rooting for the bad guy, but they are definitively better than the guy that they're facing. He just wants his money back. He doesn't want more money than what he should have had. Right, yeah. yeah. So it's Giant we're rooting for because he's facing Hogan. Mm Mm-hmm. And because he's facing the NWO, he needs to be portrayed as better than or nobler than Hogan. Yes. But he's still not portrayed as necessarily a good guy. If Giant suddenly faces Sting, you'll still root for Sting. Mm -hmm. But if Giant is facing Hogan, you'll root for Giant. The key thing is you need to be able to buy into him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can't do the wrestling thing where like Randy Orton acts the same way for months. Then he starts getting cheered. So now he's a good guy, even though he's not doing differently at all. Yeah. At any way, shape, or form. And that's where I think that really personal touch that Giant gives it on the Nitro leading up to this and on this show really, really helps. Yes. Even if you don't buy into everything that he does, even if you don't agree with everything that he does on every show that he's on, uh-huh. on this one you get, this is the guy that has been wronged and recognizes the person who wronged him as a danger to everything else. Yeah. So even though it is him pursuing a personal vengeance, Mm. which doesn't necessarily make you a face. The fact that he also does portray it as WCW needs to come together. Yeah. I am doing this on some level for the company as well, leads you to be able to take him as a face. Absolutely. Yeah. It's got to be difficult for the performers finding that right balance, but I think a lot of them actually do quite well. 
as we mentioned, Flair earlier in the night as well. Same kind of thing. He's got this, I'm still actually a bad guy. You know, I'm still cheating to win against Eddie Guerrero on this show. But at the same time, I am more than anyone here, probably an example of what WCW is. Mm -hmm. Flair or Sting are the two people that you would say are WCW. Yes. That's an interesting thing during this early NWO period, especially. We go to our seventh match, which is The Outsiders, that's Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, versus Sting and Lex Luger in a tag team grudge match. Referee for this one is Nick Patrick. So before we start, I'm a little confused on something, and maybe this answered. Do they work for WCW contractually at this point? In (laughs) storyline? Oh, I don't know if that's actually been answered yet. The nearest I can think of is at Great American Bash, Eric asked them, do you work for the WWF? And they say no. Because that was to settle the lawsuit. Because that was to settle the lawsuit, yes. that uh, <laughs> Because they had a bit of a problem yeah. with... Yeah, with as we'll discuss more when we cover that show, they debut acting like they're WWF characters. Because they want you to think that it's an invasion, yeah. I would imagine that at the very least, when we reach the point where, whether it's been revealed or not yet... Bischoff is supposed to be aligned with them, mm-hmm. then I would say probably you can say he finagled contracts for them. Yeah, for sure. Obviously, National Hall's debut is pretty famous. They would debut in separate weeks, showing up, as I said, acting like their previous characters, and setting in motion the big storyline that would cover the next two and or up to four years of company. And as I mentioned earlier, they would show up in the Great Havoc. At one point, they showed up Great Havoc, distracting Luger and Sting during a tag match cost them the titles. So now there's a personal animosity there besides the fact that in storyline, they're trying to destroy WCW. Their plan to do it is to show up on WCW TV and pay-per-view, making WCW lots of money, which will somehow destroy them. Well, I guess they figure once they win all their matches and get the titles and convince all the WCW wrestlers to come over to them because they're better, then they'll get all that money that they earn WCW, so... If yeah. you take over the company, then you get its profits, I guess. Yeah, long-term investment planning, I guess. Yeah, yeah. They will have the million-dollar man on their side before too long, so that's probably his plot. There you go. And obviously, at this point, in spite of the fact that one of them left for the WBF and only came back, what, uh, six months ago? Luger came back in October, right? Uh, like right yes. in Nitro, yeah. So he's been back a little less than a year. Sting and Luger as both tag champions and the top two faces... They're the sort of front guard against the NWO here. Yeah. Tony says the butterflies are kicking in because now we're seeing matches between WCW and the NWO. Tony talks about the NWO's strength being that they need to fight WCW, which doesn't make a ton of sense. But I think he was going for the idea that the NWO might have recruited WCW guys Mm -hmm. as they don't yet know who the fourth man is or even a possible fifth, he notes. That's true. NWO theme count, one. (laughs) Nash and Hall, out first, wear the red and black that will later be associated with the NWO Wolfpack. Yes. Nash's outfit has NW on the back, enclosed in a circle, so I guess the circle is the O? I guess, yeah. Sting and Luger enter to Man Called Sting. Sting has one of his absolute best jackets ever. Mm-hmm. It's a black background with all sorts of colors coming from the top, like feathered wings with glitter everywhere. I love, love, love that jacket. Particularly love the fact that it looks when he first steps out like it's entirely dark, mm-hmm. but then the light hits it and that's when you see all the color. Yes. That's yeah. so cool. <laughs> 
It is second only to the Captain Stingmerica jacket in my mind. His face paint and oddly headband make up pretty much the same color combo. Yeah, I don't get the headband. I'm not sure what that was about. I think it's. I think he's going for the biker thing. That's that's biker to sting his headband. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I guess there's worse biker looks in the show. <laughs> that is true. Dusty. Hmm. Luger, for his part, wears black trunks. Yep. Seriously, how did Sting never get this guy in some glitter? Yeah, right? (laughs) We get a very nice helicopter shot of the pyro going off for Sting and Luger's entrance, so at least we got some nice photography out of that tremendous expense. (laughs) Yeah, right. Speaking of tremendous expense, so much pyro. Yes. (laughs) It's like a nitro opening. (laughs) We had lots of engine revving again. After the Outsiders play Rock, Paper, Scissors to determine who starts, it ends up Hall versus Luger. The Hall does chuck his toothpick at Sting, who looks insulted. Hall out-wrestles Luger, looking insufferably pleased with himself, and mockingly flexing. Luger finally reverses a hip toss and slams Hall, roaring, and Hall looks less pleased. (laughs) Nash asks for the tag, and Hall obliges. Dusty's annoyed by the helicopter flyovers as he's losing his voice trying to speak up. (laughs) (laughs) Luger tauntingly jiggles his pecs at Nash, but Nash wants Sting. Nash spits on Sting, and Sting asks for the tag, so Luger obliges. Sting spits on Nash. Nash decks him, but Sting decks Nash in return. But Sting can't lift Nash for a slam, so Nash beats him up until Sting fires up and wins a fist fight, bobbing and weaving around Nash's strikes, and slams him for a huge pop. Very nice moment. Nash reverses a corner-to-corner whip and catches Sting trying to go up and over, carrying him with ease and dumping him on the turnbuckle. Nash and Hall trade off beating the ever-loving crap out of Sting. Hall's punches in particular are so good. Yeah, they're good snap, yeah. Heenan says he's enjoying the match so much he doesn't care who wins. Tony and Dusty immediately call him on that. <laughs> and Heenan stammers that he meant he hopes WCW wins. Yeah. Nash fakes letting Sting go for a tag, then clotheslines him down. Luger death glares at him. <laughs> the beatdown continues, and Hall catches a Sting crossbody into a fallaway slam for two. Sting is just getting decimated by the outsiders. Luger distracts Patrick by protesting more than once. Weird spot, as Nash goes for what looks like it's going to be a big boot in the corner, but then it hits more like it's a splash. Yeah. I'm not sure if it was just the camera angle, but it it looked like he didn't quite decide which one he was going to (laughs) do. I bet, yeah. Sting and Nash knock heads on a whip. Nash goes down, and Sting wobbles and falls, headbutting Nash in the crotch. Sting's favorite spot. Nash tags Hall, who continues the beating, as Heenan accidentally cheers for Hall, but rapidly backpedals. (laughs) Two count off punches, but Sting back body drops out of Hall's Outsider's Edge powerbomb. By the way, he's he's a little too early on the counter. You notice that he's like he, he's like front flipping himself almost. Oh, really? I didn't didn't get it. It's, it's it's a really slight thing. <laughs> he's really excited to take, take the front flip. I guess Heenan again cheers for Hall to make the tag, and Tony aggressively corrects him. <laughs> Sting drags himself to his feet, stumbles, and falls but tags Luger on the way down. Luger actually jump kicks Hall over the ropes. Notice that. Which I have never seen Luger do before. Yeah. Then destroys both outsiders with clotheslines and charging forearms, screaming like a banshee. (laughs) When Nash stunned in the corner, Sting hits a stinger splash and takes him outside, 
putting on the Scorpion Deathlock as Luger power slams Hall and goes for the torture rack. But he hits Nick Patrick with Hall's boot. Patrick wobbles and visibly takes aim at Luger's leg. Yes. But doesn't have the angle right. So he walks around as Luger repeatedly tries to lift Hall, stalling for time, and falls into, read, intentionally forearm strikes, Luger's knee. Luger falls and Hall pins him, and Patrick fast counts three for the NWO win. I suspect that was supposed to go a lot smoother. Yeah. Something's just kind of wrong on the angle the first time Patrick goes down, and Luger knows he's supposed to get hit, so he kind of stalls. Probably doesn't want to actually lift Hall fully, as that'd be kind of dangerous when he falls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Patrick just has to visibly, intentionally wander around and line up a shot on Luger. To be fair, even his first attempt kind of looked more aimed than I think was intended. But with him having to re-aim, <laughs> man, that looks awkward and obviously blatantly intentional. I'm surprised he didn't try doing the get your hands and knees bit and they fall over him. Yeah. That would have worked. If, if they thought to do a, a reconfiguration after the first one failed, yeah. that would have been a good thing to go with. At that point, you're like, oh, God, the spot went wrong. I got to make it work. Mm-hmm. I sympathize. I sympathize. But, man, it's it's probably the funniest ref bump that we've seen. Mm-hmm. Perhaps the funniest ref bump in WCW. Yeah. It'll take a lot to get over that. Yeah, for sure. Tony tries to sell it as Patrick stumbling, which is clearly what it was actually supposed to look like. Dusty calls Patrick out on his fast count, but Heenan disagrees. NWO theme count, two. Patrick stumbles comedically around and raises the NWO's hands in victory, then makes his exit as a ticked-off sting checks on Luger. Thoughts on this one? It's a really good match, I thought. I like the fact that, again, we only have two tag matches on this show. They don't quite tell the same story, which is a good thing, because that's a problem that we have at tag matches. This Yes. <laughs> and they always have one story, and they tell it like five times, six times, whatever done in this album. In this case, you do still have the sneaky heels controlling things, but there's a little extra to it, because they're definitely, at least in their controlled environment, they're a little more powerful, I think, is the idea. Nash can really hit you hard, and Hall can hit you really hard. The real star here, I think, is Sting. Mm-hmm. Sting does the face in peril spot. Obviously, he's at this point. He's had seven, eight years, nine years practice. Maybe almost ten years at this point. The worst thing he does is that he does arguably is that he does the uh, stumble towards the bad guy's corner thing twice. It still looks good both times, but it's like can't believe he did that again. And <laughs> did you forget where Hall was? And he I mean, remember this is Sting, the most trusting man in the universe. So he just assumes anyone at the corner is there to help him. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> It's funny because the guy who looks the best and the worst in this match is Luger. Mm-hmm. After the initial bit where Hall wrestles him, he looks really strong. Yeah, his ending flurry of offense is some of the best Luger offense we've yet seen. I yeah. Think. Especially that screaming clothesline. I mean, literally screaming clothesline that he does to Nash. Yeah, because a bunch of times the camera is farther away. Like it's the hard camera, not the closer cameraman. Like the Jackie Crockett on the ringside camera. And when the hard camera catches him yelling, that's that's pretty strong. Yeah. Though speaking of, I mean, this entire match felt loud to me. Yeah. Luger, obviously. I mean, Luger's always loud. But there's a bit where uh, Paul visibly calls a spot, you know. Yeah. He says, give him the boot. There's a lot more volume from this match, so I wondered if they just actually intentionally upped it to make it sound more epic, maybe? It could be, yeah. I mean, it's also possible that they just had a sound guy that had no idea what he was doing, because it's WCW, but Right, that is also very possible. Anything technical that can go wrong, just... 
Don't put it past WCW to do it, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, Luger looked really strong in the beginning, to the point where he has to be out of the mat for the prolonged Sting in Peril section. I don't feel like I should just call it that at this point. Not a face press. <laughs> it's the Sting in Peril. Yes. <laughs> so he's out of the mat, but then he comes back, he looks really strong, but then because of the confusing nature of the finish, and the botched nature, he goes down to a referee chop-blocking him, it is a fast count. At least Hall does virtually fall on top of him, and it is a fast count. So you kind of have a few excuses there, but yeah, it is a little bit. And admittedly, the chop block, as shown by many, many Ric Flair matches, is the single deadliest move in the history of wrestling, short of hitting someone with a high-heeled shoe. Yeah, so, that's true. I mean, Luger, by all rights, should be down going, ah, my knee, my knee, my knee, for the next hour. Yeah. So We, we had yet to establish the sledgehammer as the most dangerous weapon in wrestling. So, yeah. Yeah. The fact that he's not still out there when Giant and Hogan are fighting later is is a testament to the fact that it was just a referee that did it to him. Mm-hmm. If it was an actual wrestler, they'd have to drag him out of the ring. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I thought this was a very fun, high-energy tag match with a simple outline, honestly, mm-hmm. but tons of character. They didn't do anything actually complicated here, but boy, did they make everything look huge. Hall's punches are real, real standouts. Every one of them feels powerful. And Sting, I will agree with you, is the star of the show here. Mm -hmm. Being an exceptional face in peril, getting great reactions for all of his comebacks, and his collapsing tag to Luger Mm -hmm. is brilliant. Excellently timed and done. Obviously, we still prefer the commando role to tag. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's the best, but that falling tag is is great. Just how he actually looks like he is losing consciousness as he tags him. Yeah. Just just great. Mm-hmm. Everybody really brought out the emotion here, with the NWO at their disrespectful best, and Luger and Sting giving them death glares over and over. It's actually a pretty standard tag match in design, but the performances elevate it massively. Shame about the ending. Mm-hmm. It does not ruin the match, but it is definitely clearly awkward and unable to be covered or disguised in any way. I would imagine the plan was always going to be to make Patrick the NWO's heel ref at some point. Right. But with this, any hope of it being any kind of slow burn or mystery is pretty much screwed. Yeah. As I'll discuss in the follow-up, they lead into it pretty quickly. Yeah. But aside from the messed up ending, this was lots of fun. And I think does a ton to build up the NWO guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, they've already had one match before this where they got built up pretty good. But this match, I think establishes that's not a fluke. These guys are devastatingly powerful. Mm. They owe that a lot to Sting. Yeah, absolutely, yes. So, Clash 28, which again is on the Thursday after this show, which here's a really weird feel when you watch the Nitro, because they're trying to give you, like, the fallout of Hogwild, but also quickly push another show right away. That's true. It's so, so rushed. I feel for them that, uh, having to do these stories so quickly. Class 28, there's a triple threat tag team match where Luger and Sting try to regain the titles. Kind of forgotten match because it's not a pay-per-view. Okay. And obviously, all four men would be involved in the main event on the very next show, which of course is Fall Brawl, where we get War Games. Yes. Oh, and um, on the Nick Patrick thing. So on the follow-up Nitro, there's another tag match involving the Outsiders. Sting and Luger. But essentially a soft rematch of this one. Mm-hmm. The finish involves Sting going for his stinger splash on Hall in the corner. And initially the camera angle looks like he sort of moves out of the way, 
But when they play the replay, it's visible that Nick Patrick grabs his arm and pulls him uh, okay. in the corner. So they pretty much immediately go to Nick Patrick is, in fact, a heel. Yes. We get more shots of Sturgis at night. Actually, mostly just one street with a bunch of motorcycles sitting there. And Tony quickly advertises Fall Brawl as we go to our final match. Hollywood Hulk Hogan versus The Giant with the Mouth of the South, Jimmy Hart, for Giants WCW World Heavyweight Championship. The referee for this one is Randy Anderson. Hogan, as part of the storyline to get the title off of him towards the end of 1995, they had Jimmy Hart turn heel and join the Dungeon of Doom. Creates this very crazy situation where Hogan loses the title via DQ, but... Basically, it's implied that Hart did something with the contract for the match where Hogan could lose the title by DQ and then gets Hogan DQ'd. Yeah, because he's his manager when he does that. That's the whole thing. Yeah. Giant is part of the Dungeon of Doom, and eventually, post-uncensored, he wins the world title. So now he's a heel champion. And he's that way for a couple months on a show we've covered. I think it's Slamboree. It's him and uh, Sting, I believe. Yes, where Luger blocks... The table giant's going to choke slam Sting through with Jimmy Hart's body. That's the one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the big change to storyline after that is, of course, Bash at the Beach. Hogan runs out, reveals he's the third man. Technically, that match doesn't actually have a finish. That's something people kind of forget about. That doesn't matter, I guess, long term. So now Hogan is against the company. And if you think about it, it sort of makes sense because he is an outsider. He's just been there for a year and a half, almost two years at that point. Mm-hmm. Whereas opposed to two, three months. But, and that plays more into the story they're trying to go, especially initially, that Hall and Nash are from the other company. So, of course, Hogan, the former face of that company, being their leader, does make sense to that. I think he even plays that up in his first NWO promo. Yeah. He actually says, like, who else did you think it was going to be or something mm-hmm. along that line? I know where these guys come from better than anyone or something. Yeah, that, that, that I believe that's what he does. So it actually, yeah, I'm like, yeah, does make sense. <laughs> <laughs> It is funny to talk about that. It comes off of the goofiness. He wins this ridiculous eight-on-two tag match, triple cage. He kind of quietly goes away from it to think to shoot a movie or a TV show or something. And then his return is running out and turning heel. Yeah. Posey and the most nervous he was backstage ever before the turn. He didn't think it would work. He couldn't believe that he could ruin his career forever. I mean, you got to figure. The guy... One, hasn't been a heel for like over a decade. Yeah, it's like 83, I think. Yeah, And two had his biggest success after turning to face. Mm -hmm. So you're asking him to go back to something that he last was before he really made it big. Mm -hmm. This isn't like a Ric Flair situation where he's been face and heel and face and heel and been in the spotlight the entire time. This is, you're taking a guy who is famous pretty much purely as a face and saying, not only turn heel, but turn heel in a huge, massive way where you basically disavow everything that made you you Mm -hmm. for over a decade. Yeah. That is a gigantic thing, so I can see him being scared to death about what's going to happen with it. And from a financial standpoint, he's giving up all of the Hogan foam finger, the shirt, and everything as well. People aren't going to buy, you know, as far as he knows anyway, like this is before we know the NWO shirts are going to sell like hotcakes. Yeah, yeah. So he's like, how much am I going to lose doing this? Yeah. Yeah, that is a very fascinating thing to think about, the mindset they had to be in going into making this gigantic change. Mm-hmm. Post-turn, he makes a point of challenging Giant for the title, explaining that they're the NWO, they're here to take over and destroy WCW, 
you have to have the top championship for that. The Giant, for his part, accepts the championship match because he's a face and he has to accept anything the bad guys offer him. Right, yeah. I mean, every face must be cripplingly stupid, especially in regards of taking title matches when they shouldn't. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, so it is interesting that Giant actually is the guy who last took the title off of Hogan. That's true, yeah. But did so by nefarious means. (laughs) Yes. NWO theme count, three. Michael Buffer comes out to do the ring introductions and the theme stops. (laughs) Buffer gets a cheap pop, praising the biker rally, or a cheap rev, I guess. Yeah. Buffer builds up the importance of this battle, how the WCW championship could be stolen by an outside organization. Let's get ready to rumble. Tony points out the bikers are already doing just that. (laughs) NWO theme count, four. During Hogan's entrance, Buffer specifically calls out the shift from his normal yellow and red color scheme to the NWO's black and white, and goes over the storyline of Hogan turning his back on WCW. He dubs Hogan Mr. Hollywood. Oh. I'm glad they went with just Hollywood later. It's a little smoother. Yeah, yeah. Giant comes out to the Dungeon of Doom theme, which is not really a face theme. No. I actually would have had him come out to Hogan's old American Maid. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Buffer dubs him the most imposing physical specimen in the history of all sports, and the most dangerous man on planet Earth. Honestly, I won't really disagree with either of them. Now, at this point, Tyson was trying to do that at the latter half. Mm-hmm. With Dangerous Man, the planet thing. That's why they co-opted a bit with Steve Austin next yeah, as well. Yeah. Giant channels his inner Dolph Lundgren, telling Hogan he'll break him. <laughs> Hogan gets the heck out of the ring when Giant enters. Hogan stalls, refusing to enter, and acts like he's going to take a walk. But Giant stops Anderson from counting him out. Heenan calls Hogan scum, and Tony is surprised how cowardly Hogan is acting. Heenan says he's a scam artist. Hogan finally gets in and lands punches, but Giant just absorbs them, so back out Hogan goes. And so it goes for a while, as Hogan will come in, try a move or two, and run away when it doesn't work, yelling at the crowd. He's pulling a Scott Steiner here. Yeah. Despite that, you can hear some crowd members chanting for Hogan. Yes. Hogan is really trying to play the heel, but the bikers don't seem to get it. You know, the part of the problem is he's dressing in black and he's like a skull and everything. That is true. That is true. He is dressed more like a biker than the giant. Yeah. It is the wrong show to debut your look like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I do also gather these were not probably constant WCW viewers. No. So they might just honestly not have been aware that he'd turned. And like you said as well, he's so associated with being a face. Yeah. Plus, the actual advertising for the show has Hogan in the red and yellow posing all smiles. Yeah. Because they made that poster well before they did the turn. Correct, yes. <laughs> so yeah, you're, you're like, so all the advertising for the show has presented as Hogan as a face. And these guys may not have watched WCW that much. So they might not be aware of the heel turn. I will forgive the crowd for this reaction, yeah. actually, to some extent. Looking back, they really should have made a new version after the turn with like the NWA spray paint just over him. Oh my gosh, that'd be great, yeah. Tests of strength, and Hogan kicks Giant to knock him to his knees. Two cheers. Mm-hmm. Giant is nearly as tall as Hogan, even on his knees. Yes. Giant powers back and works a wrist lock, and kids in the crowd do start chanting for the Giant. Hogan uses the hair to more cheers and works the arm, levering Giant down for one, and 
does finally get some sustained booze from a surfboard stretch. Hogan keeps working the arm and using closed fist punches and hair pulling, but when Anderson catches Hogan, Giant pulls Hogan's hair to take him down and lands big headbutts, knocking Hogan out of the ring. Dusty advises Giant to retch over and grab him. (laughs) Tony is greatly amused. (laughs) Hogan drags Giant out and rams him to the ring post and uses several back rakes with gloves on. (laughs) Guess it's friction burn, maybe? Uh, Yeah. Giant sends him to the ring post. Back in, Giant gets two with a backbreaker, but Hogan dodges an elbow drop and punches him. But Giant hulks up. He does. You! Chop, chop, chop. Whip, big boot. And Giant signals for the chokeslam. Suddenly, Scott Hall enters the ring and climbs up top, but Giant Flair karmas him down and chokeslams him. Anderson starts trying to roll Hall out of the ring. Nash appears and attacks with Hart's megaphone, but Giant chokeslams him too. But Hogan clocks Giant with the world title for the three count and the win. A unfortunately significant portion of the crowd still cheers that. Yeah. Get a clue, guys. At the very least, the guys who were just fighting Sting, who you loved, are helping Hogan. So he's probably not the good guy. Yeah. NWO theme count. Five, as Hogan celebrates with the belt with a revived Hall and Nash. Thoughts on this one? So, uh, stalling. Lots of yeah. stalling. The thing that I, I don't quite get with the match, and I know you'll, you'll discuss it, it's part of this transition for him working heel style for the first time in like over 10 years at this point. So it's not like I don't, I don't get it, mm-hmm. but... On his surface, the match format is so weird. Once he stops rolling away and trying to escape, the second Hogan gets any advantage, suddenly the giant is debilitated. So the, just squeezing on his wrist and slightly pointing downwards at an angle makes him cry out in pain and like lose all feeling in his legs and he can't move. Yeah, it's it's a hard balance in this match that I think they're they're trying to figure out. Part of it may be that they don't want to fully lose the Hulk Hogan character. Mm -hmm. So when Hogan does a test of strength on you and squeezes your hands, you yell out and and scream. That's what you do. And even if you're going to fight back now because Hogan's actually the heel and you're going to win the test of strength, ultimately, you kind of still sell it for a while for him. And I can kind of understand that, but I also agree. Yeah, it kind of gives it a weird atmosphere that Giant is selling a little more than you expect until suddenly he's not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Going back to the Flair Guerrero match. Presumably, knowing their histories, it's a match probably mostly called in the ring. Right. But Flair is working a heel style so long and so well that Flair calling a heel match in the ring feels right and is right. done well and it elevates the other guy. At this point, it's Hogan clearly still calling the match because, to be fair, Giant is less than a year into his pro wrestling career. Right, right, yeah. So it's not like I don't blame them backstage going, Yeah, Hogan, you've worked a main event. Like almost 14 years now at this point, depending if you go back to AWA style. True. Hey, you should call this match and you should decide how this match plays out. But he makes a lot of bad calls. And again, I think this is just the thing that we talked about before is Hogan is used to being a super face. Mm-hmm. And that is how he knows how to call a match. 
because I think actually it was fairly early in his career as well when he was a heel. Yes. So Hogan may never have actually called a match as a heel. Because, yeah, when he would have been a heel in the AWA, he would have been Nick Bockwinkel presumably calling the match in the ring. Right, yeah. Bern Gagne calling the match in the ring, yeah. Yeah, most likely. So you get some awkwardness there, I think, that is definitely understandable. Right. But there's two levels that you can kind of view this match on. One is, it's not really a great match. Mm -hmm. But two is, you kind of understand why it's not really a great match. Right. I think for me, there's there's a bunch of factors in it. It's not just one thing that makes it like that, though. And. And as you also hinted as well, I mean, Giant is very inexperienced. Well, he's a tremendously talented performer. Uh He is nowhere near experienced enough to call the spots himself. Right, right. So you've got the very experienced Hogan, but not used to calling a match in this standpoint. And then the Giant, even if he did have the knowledge, perhaps, I think he's early enough in his career where you would be nervous about suggesting something different. That's what I was going to say, yeah. Because the first time for us on the podcast covering heel Hogan match, Dark Eight ninety six, Hogan and Piper. Right. For one, obviously they worked together with heel face dynamic reverse, but they worked together so many times. And Piper's this point in wrestling for like twenty five years. If Hogan calls a match to the ring and he disagrees, he has the experience and the personality and the long running relationship as well. Right. Yeah. To go, no, don't do this because that'll look bad or make me look bad or let's shorten this lengthen this what have you but i will say looking back at it especially when i rewatch it booking wise the way the match plays out called in the ring it reminded me of another hogan match that happens a bit later the sting one yes you saw that too uh, i will say i don't entirely agree but i somewhat agree there's points yeah yeah right? i think the main thing is the start of this one is better yeah well better and worse worse yeah, for right. the level of stalling but better because Hogan does genuinely make himself look terrified of Giant. He does. Yeah. And the first several times he does offense on the Giant, it does nothing. Mm-hmm. So it's not until really the test of strength spot that you start getting a little bit too much selling from the Giant, probably. Right, yeah. So I do take your point on that, mm-hmm. but I feel like there's a little more making the Giant look good yeah. in this one. Yeah, I think long-term, when we've covered more... Howard Hogan matches. I think maybe I'll have more comparison. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we'll get Hogan Savage a bunch of times and Hogan Sting at different points in their career. So maybe for contrast. But yeah, I was getting a lot of that vibe with mostly the middle part when he's controlling everything, which seems like this weird paradigm shift in momentum where once he holds him down, like Giant can't do anything. Mm-hmm. A lot of him controlling is holds. Mm-hmm. And that may just be him thinking, okay, well, when I was a face, what did the heel do to me in their control segment? Well, they tended to block on some kind of hold, especially if he's thinking of like Ric Flair backstage. Yeah. I can see that also being a thing that if you're a super face thinking, oh, what do heels do? You think of yell at the crowd, mm-hmm. stall for time, retreat in cowardice, and use holds to work a body part. And so I think that may also be where some of the imbalance comes from Mm. is Hogan's chosen holds are ones that require Giant to be down. Yeah. And therefore, Giant ends up spending a lot of his time kind of downed and with a hold on him. I don't necessarily think the intent is to portray that Hogan's actually that dominating over the Giant. I I, I like to think so, yeah. Hogan just honestly is trying to think of what do heels do and doesn't have that much in his arsenal for it. Where in the Sting match, I, I agree with you. I think that's him going into business for himself in a in large part, as right. we discussed 
extensively on that episode. But in this one, I, I really do blame more his. No, it, it, yeah, it, it, it's, it's not like this. It's not a one to one thing, but I was getting yeah. that vibe a bit in the middle. No, I get it. I get it. Yeah. And to use a statement I always never say, to be fair to Hogan, <laughs> comparing Flair Guerrero to Giant Hogan, Flair can suplex and throw around Eddie much easier than Hogan throw a giant based on both his size and experience taking bumps and right, yeah, yeah. doing that kind of thing. The other person I'll critique briefly in this is the referee. Hall and Nash are both in the theater, both lying down in, in and around the ring area. Hall especially is still down in the ring, I believe. Yeah, Anderson is literally trying to roll him out of the ring the entire time Giant is fighting off Nash. Right, right. But once Hogan has Giant down from the belt shot, Anderson literally is going over the prone body of someone in the yes. ring to kind of pinfall. It definitely is one of those, why the heck is none of this a DQ situations? Yeah, for sure. Not like 98 where they just go, hey, let it go. <laughs> yeah, if you had done it where Giant disposes of Hall and Nash and they both roll out, mm. then maybe. But yeah, it is another one of those. The ref turns around, what the heck do you think was going on? Right. And also, Giant chokeslamming Kevin Nash at the very least behind your back clearly would have to make so much noise and cause the ring to shake. Yes, yeah, right? Like, you clearly know what was happening. Right. The other question is, why don't Sting and Luger run out as well? Exactly. Especially given how they were just slighted. This is one of many times that we will encounter the whole where's the WCW guys thing. I don't mind it as much on this one as on later ones, or at least I can forgive it on this one, because I think you have to have the NWO look like they were in control of the situation here. Mm-hmm. And also, in fairness, Giant gets to look like it took the entire NWO to take him down as well. Yeah. But I will also admit, it is still part yeah. of this very long-running, mm. why are you guys not joining together like you keep saying you have to? To your point, I could see if Giant's fending them off, they come out, and the four of them are fighting ringside. That's distracting the referee, so Hogan grabs the belt. Okay, yeah, I could, I could see that. And yeah. yeah, Giant still disposes of Hall and Nash on his own at first. Sting and Luger come out to help manage them, yeah. basically. Yeah. Like, some some totally. version of that, I think, works. Yep, I can see that. That'd be fine. It's not really a good match. It's not actually awful, but it's definitely on the lower end of the quality scale. But as we said, it's, it's kind of understandable why. The weird crowd reactions don't help at all. No. The kids, blessedly, at some point start thinking, oh, this giant guy's kind of cool, and start cheering for him, but everyone else is kind of still not clued in, despite the fact that Hogan is doing everything he possibly can to look like a heel. Mm -hmm. I did find some good points to the match. Giant looks quite strong overall. Agreed. Hogan definitely has to cheat in order to get him down at various points. And Giant's Hulk-up spot is a genuine laugh-out-loud moment. It's good, yeah. I can only imagine the smiles on all their faces when they came up with that spot. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why they don't do it, but I don't understand why they don't tease him actually doing the leg drop. Like, have him, like, start to go and then go, wait, and then tie to the signal. I, yeah, I could see that being a fun thing. for Because they're, like, building, to... building, and building, and then, oh, chokeslam. Yeah, at least he does go into the, I'm signaling for the chokeslam in almost exactly the same rhythm as Hogan would jump to hit the leg drop. That's fair. So he makes it part of that sequence. Yeah. Which I liked. I actually liked him replacing the normal punches with chops as well. That was, yeah. it was like, I'm doing the Hulk up, but I'm doing my Hulk up. Sure, yeah. But yeah, as a match, this was pretty dull. But as a spectacle and a historical curiosity, it's actually kind of neat to watch. It's aided by the commentary team doing a really good job of talking up just how strange it is to see Hogan act like this. 
So I can't say that it's actually an entertaining watch, mm-hmm. but I'm actually still glad I watched it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. We do appreciate it about parallel universes where things happen differently. Yeah. So going back a bit, Giant wins an Emerald Contenders match at Uncensored in March of this year, mm-hmm. 96, defeating Loch Ness. And then he gets his title match against Ric Flair and wins the title. And that gets him in this position where he's champion going against Hogan and Hogan's turn and takes the title from him. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in the multiverse, there is a universe where that situation is reversed. <laughs> and Loch Ness is your world champion for like three months and Loch Ness is coming in and loses to Hogan. There is no way that that match even reaches this level of quality. <laughs> I, no disrespect intended no, to Loch Ness. but yeah. He was middle-aged and 500 pounds. It's, it's not his fault. Giant is definitively better, I think, as a big man at this point. Than he. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. It definitely would be a better match. It'd be an interesting match. It would be interesting, yes. The NWO celebrate as the commentators bemoan the fate of the title and Giant lies unconscious in the ring. Trash rains down, so some fans have finally figured out that they don't like Hogan. There you go. All three NWO guys hold up the belt together, which would have been an awesome shot if WCW had thought to shoot it from the hard camera. Oh. Suddenly, the booty man, Ed Leslie, appears on the ramp with a couple guys carrying a cake with birthday wishes for Hogan. Leslie puts a wrapped present in the cake itself, which seems a bit unsanitary. (laughs) Yes. One of the cake carriers has a University of Michigan ball cap on. I wonder if he's a Steiners fan. Oh, I didn't miss that. The Steiners joined the NWO. (gasps) Not yet. Tony is somehow surprised that Hogan's longtime best friend might have considered joining the NWO. Yeah. It's like being surprised when Arn Anderson supports Ric Flair. Yeah, right. (laughs) On the follow-up Nitro after the backstage assault, Mm -hmm. there's a match with Booty Man, and I want to say it's Benoit. And afterwards, they keep beating him up because of his Hogan Association. Ah, okay. And they're cutting a promo while they're beating up in the background. It's kind of funny, honestly. <laughs> At least you can argue from Ed Leslie's character point of view. I didn't become a bad guy, but these guys booted me out. Here's my best friend who I have no reason not to trust. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hogan gets a microphone. Yo, yo, yo! The NWO is the way to go! Word life. Reminded me of yay, yay, yay for the AWA. <laughs> Giant Yo, outsiders! The booty man knows it's Hulk Hogan's birthday, brother. Yeah. And you know what? Now I'm going to wish a happy birthday to me, brother. Yo, booty man. What a surprise. Hey. Also, I just want to say, first of all, congratulations on being the new NWO he is World not. Heavyweight Champion! He is the WCW Heavyweight Champion. Very simply put, that is a falsehood right there. In just a second, it's my pleasure to wish you, brother, a happy birthday in front of all these people at Starkin'. Well, where's the members of the Dungeon Doom when you need them? I just want to put my hand out and thank you for being there for me 
for 22 years, man. Congratulations, champ. Well, we have a you know something, booty man? I love you, man, like you're my own blood. You know something, man? For 20 years, brother. Downgrade? You and I have been hanging together. And to have you here with an NWO shirt on is something special. But you know something, brothers? Now that I'm the champion in Denver, Colorado, Ric Flair is gonna get the beating of his life. But you know something? There's something we all gotta learn here, man. The reason the NWO is so powerful the reason we're gonna make Ted Turner look like a second-class citizen, we're gonna wipe out the WCW, is that we never mix business with friendship or pleasure. And you know something, Ric Flair, we attacked the WCW for a reason, not because Arn Anderson was there. And so you showed your down card, brother. You got a soft spot, dude, for Arn Anderson. Well, this is my best friend here. And the one thing he's been driving me crazy about is the NWO, man. And now that we've got the mission accomplished, we want to tell you one thing, brother. They do not have We never, ever mix business with friendship, but this is a special occasion, man. And we got a surprise for you. You know what, brother? We got a surprise. Hold on. What in the world is going on? Get him, boys. Let's get Can him. Can you believe this? the Ric Flair. That is business, brother. And that was my best friend. If I'll do that to my best friend, what am I going to do to you in Denver, Colorado? The NWO rules, brother. Hulk Hogan is a very dangerous, sick individual. Oh, you're better on that. He's a very dangerous individual. What is, what, what's this? What do they have? Oh, that's spray paint. Oh my God, they're going to spray paint. Gonna... I cannot believe this. This is unbelievable. Hogan does take Leslie's present, which turns out to be a can of spray paint. Hogan spray paints the title with the letters NWO. Interestingly, the normal NWO logo has the W capitalized and the N and the O lowercase. That too, yeah. But Hogan's spray paint job reverses that. Yes, he does. Hogan poses with the desecrated belt gives us a what-you-gonna-do, and he, Hall, and Nash walk off. Giant is still unconscious in the ring. I'm pretty sure he's just having a nap at this point. Yeah. (laughs) This is a good promo segment Mm -hmm. that's almost great. Yeah. The general idea, Hogan turning on Leslie to get rid of any perceived weaknesses, is terrific. Yeah. But the execution's a little awkward. Hogan actually hits the absolute perfect line midway through to do the sudden attack. Uh When he says that, we never mix business with friendship. The first time he says that feels like it should be when the attack happens. Yeah, right? But he goes on after it. I I kind of wonder if he suddenly realized he forgot the lines about Arn Anderson and needed to work them in. Mm. Because that was such a natural place for the attack otherwise. Yeah. But then even when he repeats the line later, they don't actually just go right to the attack. Hogan goes over and cues Nash. So I guess the idea is that even they didn't know he was going to do that to Leslie, 
but it robs the moment of some of the impact it could have had mm-hmm. having this lengthy start and stop kind of build. That said, it does not rob it of all impact. Yeah. And Hogan's promo is otherwise quite good. And of course, the spray painting of the big gold belt is such an iconic moment. Yeah. That just drives home once and for all how much the NWO wants to just erase WCW and how little respect they hold for the company. When Lesley comes out with the guys holding the cake, they put the cake balanced in the corner of the ring on the ropes, the box. And I know from having seen this show before, it doesn't fall over, but I'm watching, expecting the thing to fall over any second now. It is a bad place to put that. Well, yeah, it's it's actually funny watching the entire time because Leslie brings it to the ring, slides it in, Nash picks it up then. Yes. And so Nash like carries around like, where can I put this thing? And finally sets it on the turnbuckle, walks away for a moment, looks back and sees that a cameraman has walked up towards the turnbuckle, seen the cake there and not been able to get his camera in position because (laughs) of it. So he kind of like goes over there, pretends like he's posing triumphantly and then picks the cake up and sheepishly moves it elsewhere in the ring. <laughs> yeah. If you haven't seen this promo, watch it without doing this first. Cause, sure, yeah, yeah. But then go back and watch it again and watch Nash the entire time because it's hilarious watching poor Nash try to be cake management the entire time. Yeah. Yeah, I thought this was good overall, but just could have been better with a little bit more polish. And like they needed to kind of take a second pass on their planning for it and they yeah. would have gotten the perfect promo i think i'm torn up whether or not this would have worked if they just end with the title victory and do this say on nitro they go to work i think it could but i actually do think this is a great way to end the night it's not bad i just, it's, it's, yeah, just think with the exception that i would have liked if they had giant not be there unconscious the entire time that is one other critique i will give this is this is like five to seven minutes yes giant needs medical attention if he's out that long <laughs> That feels like it kind of devalues him a little bit. Uh, he did take a belt shot, but I mean, that level of unconscious just feels odd. Yeah, we'll discuss this moment that they changed the belt from gold to lead. <laughs> and explained why he's out so long. I can see that, yeah. I think if they'd done, like, he gets hit with the belt, he lies there for a little bit, and then before Leslie fully starts his promo, Hall and Nash knock him out of the ring. And Yeah, they could have used the two guys that were sent out with the cake to carry giant away i think you'd need more than those two guys <laughs> well i mean like his arms and their shoulders not literally carry him out yeah <laughs> as is mentioned in the promo hogan immediately has a title defense which is kind of crazy to think about on the clash 28 show where he's defending the title against then u.s champion rick flair okay both titles are not in the line just for the record so we're not repeating wrestlemania 6 oh okay which gets my point about going back earlier about the u.s title he challenged for hogan's title and he's like oh yeah most of this title but whatever <laughs> here it says that that's kind of the feel you can get and of course hogan would be involved in the war games match at fall brawl which is integral to the storyline okay as for giant just a quick side here before fall brawl giant has already turned heel yeah to join the nwo that that is the real real negative with this I don't know if this has ever been confirmed, but from what I understand, they had like thought they were going to get somebody else. The British Bulldog. British Bulldog. That's, that's the right. story they always tell you. Yeah, that, that's that's what I've always heard is they thought they were going to get British Bulldog. They couldn't. And therefore, they went for something else to be a surprise. Yeah. And Giant was their best thought, which I don't think was a particularly good thought. Don't get me wrong. Giant can do an awesome heel. Yeah. But I think he was just starting to come into his own as 
starting to convert to face. Yeah. And there's an alternate universe where a giant is just solid face all the way through yeah. 1996 and 97. And that is a genuinely fascinating thing to consider. And that makes his moment from Slambury 97 with him and Luger more, more impactful. No, Spring Stampede 97. Oh, I'm sorry. Spring, you're right. Yeah, I think that makes it even better. Yeah. Do you recall from when you watched Nitro what his reason for becoming a heel was? Was it just money? Yes. Yeah. I mean, admittedly, he's like portrayed as a selfish guy for the rest of the year before this point. So that's not that. Yeah. Surprising, but yeah. Gotta get the cigarette money, I guess. Tony says he doesn't know what's going to happen from this moment on, and it's scary for everyone in WCW. We get another helicopter shot to blow more money and go back to the commentary team. Tony calls the spray painting of the belt sickening. Dusty says it was an unbelievable situation seeing that belt, which he has worn, spray-painted NWO. By no means is this over, Dusty says. And he asks, as we have, where was WCW when Giant needed them? Mm -hmm. Heenan goes to say something, but Tony signs off, telling him over his protest that they'll hear what he has to say on Nitro. (laughs) (laughs) We get a video of a motorcycle wheel spinning during the credits. And Hogwild 1996 is done. So overall thoughts on Hogwild 1996? If this was a one-off show or a two-off show, it's a very fun, unique idea. Mm-hmm. They're this very different environment, very different crowd. There's a whole feel. As I said, they spend a lot a lot of money on helicopters and, and, yes. and, and pyro for this thing. It's a show where there's a lot of good matches. There's, well, I don't think there's really any bad matches in the show there's matches that there's not much to say about like norton and ice train or ones that just they're kind of just there unfortunately like medusa and akano but yeah it's it's a good show quality wise i'd say if you want to show a different feel it's definitely there Mm -hmm. it's a good mix of quality and it's obviously historical importance it's the crowning of nwo world champion hulk hogan so it's definitely historically notable. It's an enjoyable show, other than some discomfort with the crowded points. Even just the fact that they aren't clear on the storylines, apparently, of all yeah. people. But yeah, it's definitely an interesting show. It's worth watching, I'd say. It's interesting, isn't it, how historically important it is, considering how weird experimental show it feels? Yeah. I'm not used to big, notable events happening at shows that feel like they're just that one-off, weird theme show. Yeah. But this is a massively, massively important show for WCW. Well, that's just funny you reminded me, because Bash Beach 95, that one is at an actual beach. That's the Baywatch show. Yeah. By 96, they're like, we can't lose all this money having no fans. We'll do that next month. Don't worry. Yeah. We can't do that twice in one year. (laughs) So they moved Bash to the Beach indoor arena, and people pay to see it, and they just put a beach theme on it. So it'd be weird if they hadn't done that, and you had the Hogan turn and view a promo at an actual beach and then this show following it <laughs> true yeah yeah they made the right call for you it just is an interesting like uh contrast isn't it on the yeah. front yeah for sure yeah i thought this was a fascinating show it's a completely different arena a completely different atmosphere it just feels like nothing we've yet seen even if it gets a bit uncomfortable at times as you said uh steiners versus harlem heat especially yes Overall, I think the feel of the show was fascinating and helped draw my interest into the show. So, not great from a monetary standpoint, but definitely made for a unique show. And man, do I want that arena in the games. Yes. 
Match-wise, I think we had a strong night, like you said. Outside of the main event, most matches had good to great action combined with strong character work. Mm -hmm. The main event at least still had the latter. Yeah. Even though if it's not that great of a match, it works as a historical curiosity. Agreed. Yeah. There were some real standout matches in the lower card, though, and nothing that slowed the show down. They were generally long matches, too. Only two of them are less than 10 minutes. Majority are 14 or higher. And Benoit versus Malenko tops out at nearly 27 minutes. Yes. You definitely got your money's worth in the wrestling content on this one. Yeah, that's true. Promo content was limited, but good. Giant and Hogan have very solid promos, and Flair's pre-taped one is really, really good and very different for Mm. him. I could maybe have done with a video package for the NWO feud to drive home the story so far, or a pre-match NWO pre-taped promo or something. Yeah. But otherwise, this covered what needed to be covered and did so quite well. The commentary was also generally quite good, though they did get a little hit or miss at points. It's rare for me to say this, but it felt like Heenan was not quite on form with this one. He had some jokes that just honestly went on for a little long or came back in too often. Mm -hmm. But that said, he's still a great part of the show at points, particularly with his accidental NWO cheerleading late in the show. Yeah. And some great conversations with Dusty over Dusty's wrestling history. Everyone still seemed to be having a lot of fun. They were just a tad off at times, perhaps distracted by the weird crowd atmosphere. Yeah. It cannot be easy to commentate with engines roaring nearby, as Dusty even complains about at one point. Production was odd. Oh, yeah. We got some of the usual WCW missed shots and bad angles, but we also decided to intermix wildly expensive helicopter footage for no good reason at various points in the show even going to that angle occasionally during matches, just to be extra sure that we couldn't actually tell what was going on. The rally footage included was cool to see, but there's maybe a bit too much of that. One or two segments less would have kept the focus on the actual WCW show a little better. I did really love the road trip footage, though. Mm -hmm. Moments like that that humanize the wrestlers a bit are quite nice. All told, I liked Hogwild 1996. It's hardly a perfect show, but it's quite good and a fun watch. There's some awkward moments to be sure, and I wouldn't want every show to be like this, but it was a neat experiment and worth checking out. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Match of the night and MVP then. So Al, what's your match of the night? Thankfully, this is a bit of a challenge. <laughs> yeah. Do I go with Guerrero Flair for the almost passing the torch moment? Do you have the fun but basic Luger Sting, Outsiders match. Do we have the uh, prolonged epic that is Ben Juan Malenko? Mm-hmm. Or do we have Ultima Dragon or Mysterio? It's thankfully not an easy call. It's good when it's like this. I love when these two things are a problem, yeah. Yeah, exactly. For me, I think I'm going to lean just a little bit towards the Dragon-Mysterio match. Okay. I definitely enjoyed Ben Juan Malenko, but like I said, I think... Having two restarts, I think, affected the crowd. And they they repeat a little bit, but otherwise, it's a really good match. Dragon Mysterio is a really solid match. It really hyped the crowd up, so it does its job amazingly. Mm-hmm. And it's a good pacing and good timing for me. Okay. For my part, I am going to go with Benoit versus Malenko. Kind of figured. Yeah, those two just put on a near 27-minute wrestling clinic that just built and built and built and built and built and never slowed down. Mm-hmm. It was filled with flat-out amazing sequences and counters, and proved just what amazing talents WCW had access to in this era. MVP? 
This was a tricky one as well. I mean, I, I will tell you, I started writing an MVP statement because I generally select mine before we record. Not always, yeah. but generally. I started writing, I think, eight times. Gotcha. And second guess myself every time. I am still second guessing myself on what I've got written down here. Okay. So, briefly, choices. I mean, Dragon showing up really strong in his first Fate Brew match ever in the US. Mysterio keeping pace. Do I have that? Benoit for working this match with Malenko, who's also a good, strong contender for this. Steiners for working their match. They thought they did a really good job. Booker T, even honestly, does a really good job on his part in tag mm-hmm. match. Yeah. Flair for being willing to go above and beyond even victory with a Guerrero. Guerrero passing his test to prove that he can rise up the card and become the big star that he will thankfully be in wrestling. Mm-hmm. Luger's for his ridiculous uh, yelling and just pure energy that really amplifies the finish of the match. Mm-hmm. Yep. Sting, the ultimate face in peril, gets his goofy front bump in, his accidental low blow. Yes. Hall and Nash will do a really good job playing their characters and working a basic but well-executed tag match. Even if I don't like his match, I think he's not quite there yet. Hogan for being all in on this persona, even, mm-hmm. to be fair. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think you could make a case for him. Giant for, again, that's not the greatest, but him trying to step up and try to work this nuanced character and try to get a crowd to cheer him and boo Hogan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even Tony for keeping things straight on the show. <laughs> he had his work cut out for him on this one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> as hard as it is to pick between the two, I'm going to just briefly edge out Guerrero over Sting. Okay. He was given this challenge, prove you can be a main event guy, work with Flair, do your stuff, but also do his stuff, make him look good, look good in defeat. Not that he had to work through diversity of a thing that went wrong. And yeah, yeah, I think that's really impressive. So that's a slight edge for, for me, for him. Okay. Yeah, as I said, I had a massively hard time with this decision as well. I was, I was glad to hear you do that. It wasn't like... Oh, no, right away. I got it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I love when it's a hard choice for MVP. Agreed. Yeah. I would name a lot of the same names you did. Benoit, Malenko, Dragon, Mysterio, Luger, Nash, Hall, Sting, Flair, Guerrero. Like you said, there's a case to be made even for Hogan for Giant, mm-hmm. even though their match wasn't as strong. Like what they're both doing character-wise is yeah. is so different for them. Part of it is all the roles are so interconnected mm-hmm. that it's actually hard to separate people out in like a given match and say, this person deserves it more sure. than these other ones. Yeah. Like, how do you pick between Benoit and Malenko right. in their match? I, yeah. I, was, I was honestly tempted to just give it to both of them, mm. but I really wanted to try and pick one person. Sure. So for me, that person was Sting. Okay. You've pretty much made my case for me throughout the yeah, night, yeah. honestly, that he just does such an amazing job with this face and peril role, working his butt off to make sure that the NWO looks super strong by being able to thoroughly decimate one of WCW's best. Plus, he has one of his best ever jackets, which earns extra points. Yes. If they given Sting even just a short promo before the match, I think that would push him up ahead yeah. for me. And again, I don't disagree at all on oh, the yeah. Eddie choice either. That's, no, I get you, yeah. But yeah, seriously, it's a really important role that he has here, and Sting nails it, bringing out the emotion of the NWO angle and helping the new-ish heels look really powerful while also not losing what he is. Exactly. Like, he manages to be beaten up but still be Sting, which is something that is actually really hard to do as a strong face. Like if you're that power kind of face guy, but you have to look decimated, that's a hard 
balance to find. And no respect to Giant, but you have a direct parallel on this show. <laughs> yeah. I think just the, the importance of what his role was accomplishing, I think, kind of is what edges him out for me. But just about any of the wrestlers on this show, you could honestly probably make a case for, and probably almost any of the commentators, too. Yeah. There's a lot of really good performances, which is part of what makes this show so fun. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And that wraps up our review of Hog Wild 1996. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about each show as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, Verbal, or Audible. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, give us a rating or review and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures, and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. Next up, Road Wild 1997. It's gonna be wild. So wild, in fact, that WCW reportedly had to swap out Hog for Road to avoid infringing on trademarks. Yes. If trademark law isn't wild, I don't know what is. Mm-hmm. This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen, signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. And of course, the other question is, why don't Hall and Luger run out? Sting and Luger. Sorry. Why don't, <laughs> yeah, sorry. The other question is, why don't Sting and Luger run out as well?